All right. Here is the big, big question that I've spent way more time than I thought I would trying to figure out the answer to, which is, do the last 12 verses in the Gospel of Mark, that's Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, do they actually belong in our Bible? And this breaks down into multiple questions that each need to be examined, and we're going to do it thoroughly today. Did Mark write these words in verses 9 through 20? That's that's one question. Some people say yes, some people say no. Um, also, we want to ask, were they originally part of Mark's gospel when it started circulating? And then we're going to also want to ask, do we want it in our Bibles today? And <clears throat> I'm going to give you my conclusions towards the beginning of this study, because it's going to be a very long study, warning, <laughs> and we're going to have timestamps down below. So you can find different places where I deal with different things. I've spent, at, I mean, at least 150 hours preparing today's study, reading all kinds of content from everywhere because I just was having a really hard time wrapping my head around it. So here's my best understanding as it stands now. Do, do we think Mark <clears throat> wrote the gospel of Mark chapter nine, uh, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20? And the answer to this is going to be for most Christians a big yes. Most Christians are going to simply say, hey, look, it's in my Bible. He wrote it, right? Like it's, it belongs there. Most scholars will say no. And I don't just mean like unbelieving scholars. I mean, most Christian evangelical scholars will actually say they don't think that he wrote it. These verses, I actually covered verse by verse last week on the Mark series. And there's a link to that down below with a lot of other links down below, or we'll have timestamps later as well. And these verses include three post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He appears to, to Mary. He appears to two people. Then he appears to the 11. It's narrated very briefly. And then it summarizes about 20 years of church history with one verse at the end. <clears throat> Jesus giving the Great Commission and then them going out. Now, I talked about the whole snake handling stuff and all that last week. But I've spent a lot of time trying to dig deep on this debate. And I'm going to walk you guys through everything I learned. Because, hear me now, most people have a pretty shallow understanding of this topic, even if they have spent some time studying it. Um, that speaks even of me, myself, before launching into the study that I'm about to share with you guys now. Um, I've gone a lot deeper on the topic, especially on the internal evidence. Anyway, we'll get there. Timestamps down below and all that. Um, let me just explain the lay of the land for us to start out with. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 has been in most Bibles through, for, for most Christians throughout time, not just recently, throughout time, the vast majority of Christians had this in their copy of Mark, whether it was a community copy or it was their own personal copy or whatever. And most scholars, however, would say it's probably not original. And there are two major big reasons for this. One is the external evidence. That is the various copies of Mark we have in history, in Greek in, and in other languages. And then other stuff like the church fathers and quotes from them and lectionaries. I'll explain that when we get there. And the second reason, not just the external evidence, is the internal evidence. Now, this can be pretty challenging to dig into, especially if you don't have a really good grasp of Greek, right? Which which I don't pretend to have this wonderful grasp of Greek. I'm, I dabble in some Greek, you know? <laughs> but, um, but I really lean on others for their understanding on a lot of this stuff. And... <clears throat> The basic claim is that the vocabulary and the style that are in these last 12 verses, that they don't match the rest of what's in Mark. And I spent days just trying to work through this, and I'll share everything with you and try to make it as accessible as possible, but without dumbing it down. Let me admit my bias and then tell you what my conclusions are going to be, <laughs> and then I'll walk through how I get there. So my own bias, either answer is okay with me. I really am honestly, genuinely okay 
with concluding that Mark 16, 9 through 20 belongs in the Bible or that it doesn't. With concluding that Mark wrote it or concluding that he didn't, I'm okay with either one. I don't feel committed <clears throat> at the outset to one, one option or the other. Um, my faith and my beliefs are not impacted in any significant way by this. And I point you to last week's verse-by-verse -verse study through this passage to show you why. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. But that doesn't mean I don't care about it. Like, I do care about it. And while I'm okay with either one, I prefer, and here's my bias, my preference is to say it's authentic. I want to tell you that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is written by Mark, <clears throat> was originally part of the gospel, and belongs in your Bible. <coughs> Excuse me for coughing in your faces or ears or whatever that was. I promise germs cannot pass through microphones yet. They're working on it. Um, so I do prefer to say it's authentic. Um, and the main reason for this is not because of any fear about my faith or worse. It's actually just pastoral concerns. I'm like worried that those who listen to this will, will hear questions, reasons to doubt whether it's authentic and that they'll overreact. Let me, let me give an illustration for this. Some people will say that if, if, if I can't trust that Mark wrote and that it's authentic and everything, the last 12 verses of Mark, then I cannot trust anything in my whole Bible. And they'll just say, that's it. The whole tower comes crumbling down and they, they irrationally overreact and spaz out. And there's probably someone doing it in the comments right now as I'm speaking. <laughs> so what I'm going to recommend is <clears throat> if that's you, please don't watch my video. Um, this isn't like a weird, you know, reverse psychology thing. I'm quite serious. More important to me than what you think about these last 12 verses is your, just your faith and trust in Christ and in God's word. And so if you from the outset, you can't handle hearing someone who's going to have some negative things to say, please, honestly, like, don't feel any, you, there's no reason, you don't have to listen to me. There's no need to listen to what I have to say about this. Um, go look up um, Nicholas Lunn or Robinson or one of those other scholars, people who've actually defended exactly the position that you find very precious and learn those arguments and go for it. That's it. Yeah, and I'll have a link down below to Nicholas Lund's book. You could check it out. <clears throat> so the reason why I say this is because pastorally, I'm worried that people overreact because it's just like with car accidents. Here's an illustration that might help. Um, a lot of car accidents are not caused by what you'd expect. It's caused by the overreaction. So someone sees like a stick in the road and they overreact and they hit the center divider trying to avoid the stick or they crash into the car next to them when it actually would have been safer to just run over the stick. This is the kind of thing sometimes people do when it comes to questions about their faith. They overreact, they flip out, they, they, they go too far and they say things like, well, if I can't trust the last 12 verses, I can't trust anything, everything, my whole world is destroyed. And you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Um, so pastorally, I just wanna say, I'd like to be able to conclude it's authentic, but even more than that, I want truth. So if you think you can't trust God if this is not authentic, please don't watch my video. Um, there are different issues. There's different issues here, and, and some people don't talk about the different issues. They muddle it all together, right? One issue is, did the author of Mark, who wrote the rest of Mark, did he write the longer ending? A separate issue is, was it originally part of Mark's gospel, even if someone else wrote it, whatever. And the third issue is, should I treat it as scripture? Um, three very different issues. Let me give you, um, before I tell you my conclusions, and then I start working through how, do I, how I would suggest you should arrive at the same conclusions, I think. Let me tell you why this research was really hard. 
because if you've already read scholars on this topic, I think you might be confused and you might not know it because <laughs> I was and I didn't know it. Um, the majority of scholars, they seemed super solid in their arguments here. And I'm talking about guys like Dan Wallace, Bruce Metzger, Keith Elliott. Um, th these guys seem really solid in their argumentation that the longer ending of Mark does not belong. But the minority of scholars, which I focused on primarily in my research this time around, guys like James Snap, Nicholas Lunn, Robinson, Bergen, Farmer, those guys. <clears throat> or maybe it's pronounced Bergen. I don't know. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the, um, <clears throat> the minority, they tore apart these majorities' case, the majority scholars' case. And I started feeling a sense of distrust towards this majority, thinking like, boy, you, you misstated that. You misstated that. But as I continued to study more deeply and I started thinking, I have to just fact check every single thing I hear from everybody, I found that A, the minority of scholars, and I do mean James Snap and Nicholas Lund, who I respect and appreciate, but I care about you and that you think clearly on this topic, that that minority who push very hard against the majority, that they tend to be overly critical of the majority, as in <clears throat> they'll take a statement and read it in the most uncharitable way and then proceed to critique it as if it was inaccurate. And if you're not really paying attention, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're right criticisms. Other times they're blowing things out of proportion. But here's the more important part. When it came to building their own case, they had very uneven standards. That is to say, and <clears throat> I have to put this right in the front, because if you've been reading the scholars on this, you might be confused like I was for, I don't know, two weeks um, as I just kept studying and studying is that um, what I found among the minority was some good critiques of the majority, but uneven standards. Uneven standards, that is super high, sometimes too high standards for those who present the position against the longer ending, and really low standards for confirming their own position. So I'll give you some examples as we go on through, but this just caused confusion. It turned out in the end, when I kind of finished my study of all this stuff, that both sides were kind of overstating their case, I think, in places. And muddling through that was hard work. Let me give you then my basic conclusions. My basic conclusions. And, and I want you to consider me not as the guy who figured it all out for you. I'm a resource for you to consider, among others, as you work through this topic. <clears throat> my basic conclusions are as follows. Probably, the got probably, not for sure, but most likely it seems that this was not originally part of Mark. It was not originally part of Mark. And the person who... Second issue, the person who wrote the longer ending didn't write Mark. Probably different authors, right? Not, not the same author at all. And on the other hand, while that might sound pretty negative, I do think we should include it in our Bibles. I, I think we should include it in our Bibles. And I'll build a case for this later on at the very end. And you can find a timestamp for it down below if you want to get there right now. <clears throat> but I think it should be included in the Bible, in, in our Bibles, with footnotes and hopefully a careful and helpful explanation for why there is some question about it. I think that that's probably the way to go, and that's the way a lot of translations have been going. I want it in my Bible still. I don't just want to get rid of it, which is what I used to think. Why is it even there if it's not authentic? And I think I hadn't thought it through carefully enough. Anyway, I'll talk more about that later. So here we go. We're launching into the evidential analysis. I'll give you guys lots of links, lots of examples, lots of pictures to look at as well. The external evidence is where we're going to start. The Greek manuscripts, the early translations, the church fathers, and the lectionaries. These are like the four categories we're going to walk through. Um, I'm going to walk through the evidence. And then after I explain what the physical external evidence looks like, we'll say, what do we do with that? Like, how does that apply to the debate? This is not a short summary video. This is going to be a long video. I hope I can make it. I hope I need more coffee. 
I need more coffee. I need. I need to look at my cat. <laughs> I need to look at my look at my cat. Oh, I want to trade places, make her teach, and I'll sleep. All right. <clears throat> so forgive me if I if I muddle up my words a little bit today. I woke up at three a.m. for absolutely no reason whatsoever. <laughs> After falling asleep at like midnight. It's one of those days, you know, you know, you, you get those days. So I got more work done though. It might make you happy, but uh, bags under my eyes are extra, extra baggy. <laughs> so, so I can learn, learn humility and uh, lack of vanity today. At any rate, here's the external evidence. There are again, two sides. The majority, they're going to say the external evidence, the, the manuscripts, ancient copies of Mark that we have in, in Greek other translations, the church fathers, and the lectionaries, which I'll explain. They're going to say this tells a story that at the very beginning, Mark's gospel didn't have these last 12 verses. And then it was added. And then slowly, as people were copying and copying, that extra 12 verses kind of mingled its way around and eventually became part of the story of Mark. So late copies all have it. Early copies, they're less likely to have it. That's the story that they're going to tell. Guys like, say, uh, Dr. James Snap or Dr. Nicholas Lund, they want to say a different story. Their version of the story goes like this. It was specifically in Egypt that the 12 verses were lost or removed, depending. <clears throat> they offer multiple explanations for this. We'll get there later. But they'll say in Egypt, that's where you can isolate all of the missing the last 12 verses type stuff. It all comes back to Egypt. And that influence of Egypt spread and affected other people. But then it was overcome by the original authentic, you know, ending of Mark. And um, this is the first picture I'll show you. These are what's called text types. Um, this is a little difficult to talk about because it's not super cut and dry like it looks like in this picture. But these are just, you know, when we have manuscripts of the Bible, of the New Testament in particular, from back in the day, they tend to be like showing evidence that they sort of were gathered around certain areas. So the Alexandrian, which is down in Egypt right? In, in, in that area of Egypt there, what we call lower Egypt, um, that area has like, when we have manuscripts that are influenced by that area, that have certain readings in the text, right? The, the Caesarean have certain readings, Byzantine have certain readings, Western have certain readings. When this debate comes up, the Alexandrian ones in Egypt, they're the most prominent location missing the 12 verses. The Byzantine up north there, they're the most prominent location having the 12 verses. Although even that I say most prominent. It's not like it's 50-50, right? <laughs> it's not like that at all. Not like half have it and half don't. I'll explain more here. So text types, that's a text type. The Western text type, the Caesarean text type. When we read, you know, Mark 15.2 in the Alexandrian text, it tends to read with this way of spelling the words or that kind of thing. Um, all right. So <clears throat> summaries, because they tend to oversimplify, let me backtrack slightly on what I just said and say this. In the Greek manuscripts we have, we have like, I think over 1600 manuscripts that have Mark. Um, I'm not sure how many of those have the ending of Mark. I just don't know the number off the top of my head. But here's the thing. Like almost every Greek manuscript manuscript has the ending of Mark. Almost every one. It, it's like the percentages are so high. Like some say, well, it's like 99%. Um, it, it's ridiculous. The number of manuscripts that have the longer ending, the ones that don't are a very small number. But when it comes to this stuff, what we do have to answer is the question, how do I explain the few that don't have it? And when I add in other evidence, does it start to look like a trend that suggests it's not authentic? So age matters, not just quantity. Some just want to count manuscripts. 
If 99 have it and one doesn't, then it must be authentic because 99 had it. Others would say, well, wait a minute. What if the one that doesn't is the oldest and most reliable one? Oh, well, I guess that might change how we evaluate it. So that's kind of the, the thing is they want to say, let's weigh the manuscripts. Let's consider how valuable it is, how reliable it is, um, how early it is. And that itself is complicated, but that's basically the idea that we're looking at. Um, so, and even though I showed you this text types picture, just know this, that the trend of modern scholarship is to think that these text types are more like they cross pollinate a little more than they used to think in the past. And that it's a little bit of an oversimplification. Not that that helps you. Yes, a lot of the stuff I'm going to tell you will annoy you today. It'll get better as we go. <laughs> but there's a lot of, let me make you a little confused about this so you can understand that it's the oversimplifications that we often hear are a little bit oversimplified. Let's talk now about the two oldest Greek manuscripts of Mark, the two oldest. And in both of them, the longer ending is missing. So Codex Sinaiticus is the first one we're going to deal with. This is a fourth century codex. Um, codex just means book, right? So like this is effectively a codex, whereas um, other stuff would be like a scroll. You know, early on, Mark was probably written on a scroll, right? Nicholas Lund argues, I think, I think he's the one that argues differently. Maybe it was Hester. I don't remember anymore, but it was probably written on a scroll. Um, but shortly thereafter, Christians were very used to using codexes. They started popularizing books effectively because they just wanted to make so many copies and this was an easy, cheap way to do it. At any rate, Codex Sinaiticus is a fourth century, that is in the 300s. It is a codex book. It's one of the principal witnesses to the Alexandrian text type. Remember them? So this one is like Egypt area. Okay. Remember that that will be important because of those who will argue about how to explain the evidence here. This is important for showing us what Mark 16 looked like pretty early on, especially near Egypt. Okay. Pretty early on, you might be like 300s. That's not, no, that that's actually pretty early on. That's pretty great that we have that kind of evidence. This one ends at verse eight. And here is a picture of how it ends. And there's a debate about how it ends and, and what, what you see in this picture. So in Sinaiticus, it ends right there at the end of Mark. What you see on this picture is you've got like the lines. Those are kind of important. Let me zoom in on those and let me talk about them a little bit more. Um, everybody agrees Sinaiticus does not have Mark after verse eight. It just ends with verse eight. It's like Ephabonta Gar, right? It just ends right there. Um, and then that's the end of verse eight, just like it is in your Bible, you know, for they were afraid. We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> That'll be our last study in the Mark series. Um, but what the what the, the people who push back, what they'll say is, hey, notice these endings, these ending marks. Okay, so he wrote at the at the bottom of your page there, he writes like, you know, this is, you know, that's the end of the gospel of Mark. That's what that writing is implying there. And then above it, you have this artistic stuff, these little flourishes. And after the lettering, the scribe, he wrote little flourishes to finish off the last line. Then he wrote a whole line of more flourishes all the way across the line. And he has stuff along the side column as well. What Nicholas Lunn and James Snap are going to suggest on this is that perhaps this is the scribe actually telling us that he knows about the longer ending. And what he's doing here is he's adding extra artwork at the end because he's basically saying, don't you dare try and add more to this manuscript after this ending. It's like his way of weighing in on the topic is, is their suggestion, which implies two things. One, he knows about the longer ending. Okay, so then you could try to suggest that it was present where this manuscript was copied in the fourth century. 
but also that he's opposed to the longer ending. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. You don't get too much of the debate back and forth on this when you're reading on it, but here is, oh, by the way, so this scribe who wrote this, he only wrote the ending of four books in Sinaiticus. Four of the places in Sinaiticus where a book ends, this is the scribe who wrote it when you compare the handwriting stuff. And this is one of them. He writes at the end of Tobit. Um, Tobit's there. It doesn't mean they thought it was, it was scripture. That's a whole other debate. But at the end of Tobit, you see he puts flourishes, but there's less of them. And that's, that is noticeable, right? There's a lot less. He only goes half a, halfway across the page. At the end of Judith, the same scribe also you know, right here in front of you, he, he wrote some flourishes at the end of Judith. It ends a lot like Mark, a lot like Tobit, but but it's there's less flourishes. There aren't very many flourishes. The only other place was First Thessalonians. And again, the scribe, he does actually show a pattern. He tends to have like this little cutesy line going down along the margin. And then underneath, he goes partway through the line. But if we go back to Mark, we see that the scribe drew a lot more than that. Okay, the, this is just guesswork at this point, but I will acknowledge, right? What, what Snap and Lund are saying here is, look, we've got four examples of the same guy, how he ends a book, and he does something different in Mark. Perhaps he's aware of the longer ending. That seems plausible to me, and it seems reasonable. But the only pushback I would offer is, do we have other examples of scribes doing this, of using artistic flourishes to signal that they don't want anyone to add to this a variant that they're aware of? Um, also, it could be a response to the intermediate ending. We haven't discussed this yet, but we will. But there are more than there's more than one ending in Mark. There aren't like eight of them, like some people claim. But there's more than one ending of Mark in the manuscripts. And the one that matters to us, that should matter to us, is what's what I'm going to call the intermediate ending. Some people call it the shorter ending. We're going to call it the intermediate ending. I'm going to call verse eight the shorter ending. I'm going to call verse twenty the longer ending. That's my terminology for this. And um, it's possible that this scribe was aware of the intermediate ending. That is entirely possible. And so even if he is weighing in against an ending, it may not show knowledge of the longer ending. So I think that this is a little bit, it's a, it's a little bit of a stretch to say he knows about the longer ending and doesn't think it's authentic. Um, he might be thinking about the intermediate ending, even if they're interpreting these symbols correctly. Other scholars will say, like uh, Keith Elliott says, hey, it's really not a good idea to try to read into scribal doodles. I mean, that's his response to this argument <laughs> is like, this is not as smart. Um, at any rate, Let's not miss the forest through the trees. We have a very early manuscript that, the earliest two manuscripts of Mark that show that it's not there in these manuscripts. That's pretty interesting. Codex Sinaiticus uh, is the first one. The next is Codex Vaticanus. Codex Vaticanus is also a fourth century codex, a book, right, of copy of a bunch of books of the Bible, but it actually is a little older than the previous one. So this is our oldest copy of Mark as far as Greek manuscripts go. Not our oldest information about Mark, though. We'll get there later. It has Mark ending at verse 8 also. So let me take you to the picture of that. This is Vaticanus. And you can you can see this on the Vatican's website. I got a link down there in the, in the picture as well for you to go and check it out your, yourself if you'd like. Uh, that's, not, that's not in the description, but that is in the picture. And this, um, this, according to Dan Wallace, is the most important witness to the Alexandrian text, and I think a lot of people would agree with this statement. I don't think this is controversial. It's generally thought of very highly. Vaticanus is seen. There's conspiracy theorists. Look, I'm not interested. I think you're not being rational. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> but but Vaticanus seems to be a very good witness to the Alexandrian 
text type, showing us what it looked like really early on, suggesting that really early on, at least for the Alexandrian, for the Egypt area, Mark may have ended at verse 8. That's the implication of this, these two manuscripts. The pushback, though, on this from uh, Lund and Snap is actually super interesting. I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of this, even though my video is going to be 70,000 hours long today. The pushback on this is they agree it ends at verse 8, just like Sinaiticus. They're like, yeah, it ends at verse 8. But they think, just like they think with, with Sinaiticus, they think that the scribe is showing knowledge of the longer ending. And in this case, favorable knowledge of the longer ending. Like he knows about it and he, and he wants to like, he wants to leave space for it. Do you notice these columns? The end of Mark has like, you know, I don't know, a quarter of the page, a quarter of the column, sorry, left in the middle of the page there that's open space, but then there's a whole blank column. This is not normal in Vaticanus. There's a giant blank column. Usually the next book would start there. Luke would start right there after Mark, but not in Vaticanus. There's an open column there, and it is sort of asking for an explanation. Some just dismiss this, and I'll explain why they dismiss it. Okay, here is the debate on this topic, which I find fascinating and annoying at the same time, and you probably will too. Um, so, um, like I said, uh, in Vaticanus, a book would start in the next column, not in Mark. This is what uh, James Snap and others would call memorial space. They're like, hey, this is where the scribe is leaving an open space where you could fit the longer ending if you want to. He thinks perhaps the scribe is saying, you know, some later owner of this manuscript, he might want to write in the longer ending. Maybe the scribe writing, he, this is just guesswork, right? But maybe the scribe writing it, he knows there's a longer ending. He just doesn't have it in front of him in, in his exemplars and the ones he's using to copy Vaticanus. So his older manuscripts don't have it, but, but he knows about it from other th sources. So he leaves a space for it. That's, that's the theory. Against this, they'll say, hey, but wait a minute, guys. There's th this, is, this is like Wallace and those guys say, hey, against this, there's three other books in Vaticanus. Here's one of them where there's blank columns and they, and they basically don't mean anything significant. Okay, so in Daniel, there's two blank columns. And it's an even bigger space than Mark before we start the next book of the Bible. In Nehemiah, we have another big open space. It's almost a whole page that's empty after Nehemiah. Um, and then Tobit, same thing. We've got this open space bigger than the space in Mark. In every case, it's bigger than the ending. what's there at the ending of Mark. But the debate is not over yet because the pushback to this from guys like Snap and, and Lunn are going to be saying things like, hey, all of those spaces in those three examples you gave, they're all there for a reason. And they have a pretty good argument here. So listen, this is what they say. Daniel, let's go back to Daniel here. At the ending of Daniel, uh, James Snap says, this is caused by the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament because Daniel is the last book going from the Old to New in Vaticanus, right? They have a different order of books than what we have in our typical Bibles today. And so Daniel is just going to New Testament. That actually does make a lot of sense. That seems pretty plausible that you would have an open space as you're switching from Old Testament to New Testament. Nehemiah, he explains the space in Nehemiah, and this is very convincing too, that the space is left, I think it's just very solid, is because Nehemiah is three columns like most books in Vaticanus. But the next book that follows Nehemiah is a two-column book, the book of Psalms. Now, when you go to a th from a three-column per page book to a page that a book that's written with two columns per page, you, you have no choice but to leave empty spaces until you can start on a fresh page with two columns. That is a perfectly good explanation. I have no argument against that. I think he's made a point. And you're going, the point here is that 
spaces look like they have to have explanations. Okay, well, that makes the pro longer ending side sound a little better here. When it comes to Tobit, the reasoning gets, if, as I understand it, is a little bit less powerful. They say the reason for the space in Tobit is because one scribe ended Tobit and a different scribe started the next book. Um, that's possible, but that doesn't seem necessary. I don't see any reason for that. I'm not sure what other support can be offered for that. Um, do we see this wherever a new scribe takes over? Right? I haven't heard that that's the case. Um, so that's a little softer. But at least he's given us reason to think there can be some explanation for the for the mark ending. And here it is again. I'll show it to you. I think I just showed you Sinaiticus. I don't want to confuse you here. There it is. Vaticanus Mark. He's suggesting there's got to be, you know, there's some reason for the space that we have here in this manuscript. And <clears throat> against this, the, the debate's not over yet. Against this, guys like Wallace will say, look, that's fine. Even if you feel you can explain all the spaces in those other places in Vaticanus, none of them are explained by variance. In none of these occasions is space being left for missing text. And that's actually a powerful point because all of them are explained by features that relate to like the nature of the organization of the text. Nothing about variance. That's a pretty powerful point. But it probably has some explanation. And the pushback again would be, okay, fine. You want to explain it somehow? Wallace, others will say, hey, you can't fit the longer ending there anyways. This space that's left in Mark, you can't fit it. But James Snap, who's very thorough and, and tenacious in his, and he's probably commenting on my video, or he will be very soon because, hi, Dr. Snap. He always comments on everybody's stuff. So you get to hear his refutations of me in the comment section. I'm not going to remove him. You're welcome to leave him there, Dr. Snap. I'm perfectly happy for people to hear what you have to say. I have links to your website too, um, or at least to your book. So the um, the pushback to this is from Dr. Snap. Oh, yeah? Is that what you think? And he takes up the challenge and says, I will write in the same handwriting as, as this scribe uses, I will write the longer ending in the space that's provided here. So uh, let me find it now in my, there we go. This is James Snap's reconstruction where he's like, and I, I'm pretty sure this was uh, James Snap who did this particular copy. I'm fairly certain it was, I got it from him. But he's like, look, this is the longer ending. I fit it in there. Now, what the naked eye can't tell very easily is that he does, and he admits this, he's not hiding anything here. He compresses the, the, the letters a bit, right? He, he, he fits more letters in the column than this scribe typically does. He smashes things in a bit. That's true. But I think the point is made that if a scribe was just off the top of his head going, I'll try to leave space for the longer ending, but he didn't have the longer ending exactly in front of him, this would be approximately the right amount of space. Okay, so that, that feels like a that feels like a, a win. <laughs> a win for James Snap there. I, I thought that was pretty good. But there's more. That we go deeper. We go deeper into the rabbit hole. We go further into Wonderland. <laughs> umlauts. <laughs> Let's talk about umlauts. This is a textual criticism thing. There's a recent discovery about Vaticanus in particular. And it is that, according to Dan Wallace, and he's a very highly respected textual critical scholar and an evangelical Christian. And he says, uh, these umlauts, which are like a, a, on your screen, you see them. It's, a, it's like a, a colon put sideways, two little dots in the text. These appear many, many times. I think it was over 200 times off the top of my head, I think. In Vaticanus, they appear there as a way of the scribe indicating that there's some variation in his copies, right? Because not all the copies agree. No, this shouldn't surprise anybody, nor should it worry you. We have incredibly high level of reliability about what 
is in our scriptures, but the, that is because we compare the copies and consider them. But yeah, these little umlauts. What's interesting is these umlauts do not appear in Mark 16. The point here is the scribe has a habit, um, and Vaticanus has a habit, I should say, um, of using these little indicators to say there's variation, and they don't put them in the most obvious spot of Mark 16. That seems to be important to me. Um, it's true that the pushback is, hey, that doesn't matter because the um, the space, the memorial space, James Snap would say, is enough to tell us that he's aware. He doesn't need to use umlauts because he's using that. But if memorial space here isn't super obvious, and I mean super obvious, and the typical way of demonstrating a variant isn't given, now I feel like it starts to become a weaker explanation. And I also feel like we're paying more attention to the space than we are paying attention to the fact that there's nothing else there after verse eight. And that can be a change of subject that confuses people. Um, there's an alternate explanation for the space. And the alternate explanation is, and this, this matters too, a competing explanation, is that in older arrangements of the gospels, Mark was the last gospel, not Luke, uh, not John, excuse me. And it's possible that in the exemplars, in the stuff that they're using to copy Vaticanus, this is a possible thing, that given Mark was the last book of the Gospels and you moved to Acts, you moved to those other books after that, that that was why there was an open column left because it was a genre shift, which we do see happening in other places in Vaticanus. So I think that kind of defeats, at least for me, the persuasiveness of the empty space memorial space argument it's just not strong enough i'm not sure what to make of this space so i withhold judgment the point for vaticanus is the longer ending's not there and it's not there in the early alexandrian text type and this is evidence that at least some trusted copies made by some pretty serious scribes they were missing the longer ending in the fourth century and possibly as early as the second century so something will have to explain that data. That evidence will have to have explained. Now let me talk about how important these manuscripts are. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus have a certain degree of importance or weight. I talked, remember there's very few that are missing, that, that only end Mark at verse eight, very few manuscripts. Like you could count them on one hand. There's very few in Greek. Um, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, how important are they is the real question. And they represent, like I said, the Alexandrian text type there's this text type thing up on your screen again for you. And um, they are the two oldest Greek copies of Mark 16. And they are considered a relatively pure form of the text. This part's kind of important. This doesn't mean Vaticanus and Sinaiticus should always be taken as the correct reading in every case automatically. But they should be considered as having being kind of heavyweights to, in some regard. This This is how scholarship has treated them over the past, like, I don't know certainly longer than I've been alive. And let me quote to you what Metzger said about them. Here's the quote. Uh, textual witnesses connected to Alexandria attest a high quality of textual transmission from the earliest times. It was there that a very ancient line of text was copied and preserved. The Christian scholars of Alexandria worked assiduously to preserve an accurate form of the text, meaning they were careful and trying to be, doesn't mean they're perfect, but they were very careful, which implies that this is kind of a big deal, right? Kind of a big deal. This is in the book Perspectives. One of the books I'm going to recommend if you want to dig deeper on this. This is a four views book. So it's got four chapters with people who have all four different opinions about the long reading of Mark. Then it has a summary or analysis of all those opinions by uh, Daryl Bach at the very end. I thought this was a pretty good um, book. You, 
you can uh, check it out and it it at least will introduce you to a deeper deeper level of confusion that may serve you well as you try to wrap your head around this <laughs> around all these issues. Um, Wallace in this book in Kindle Location 300 he argues that the readings in Vaticanus and Sinaiticus actually go back to the second century. That's super early. That in the second century. We have this going on. Uh, the implication is that um, in the second century, in the 100s, there were copies of Mark ending at verse 8, and scribes who often did a good job still thought this was where the text should end in the fourth century. But we shouldn't take that reading without thinking about it. Let's talk about one other example, Codex 304. Codex 304, which is kind of a strange example. This is a Byzantine manuscript. So back to our text types, the Byzantine are the ones that usually have the long, they always have the long reading. This is like the exception, okay? This is a 12th century Bible with commentary. I'm gonna acknowledge here that uh, Snap and Lund both have mis misleading information on this particular one. No offense, I just want you guys to be aware of this. I have a link down below to a commentary by Dr. Mina Monier, um, who gives an analysis of this text and shows you pictures of it that I think easily demonstrates the confusion that is there with Snap and Lun on it. But 304 is Byzantine. Here's 304, ending at Mark 16.8. Now, don't worry for a second about the page being cut off there. Don't get, don't get paranoid about that. That has nothing to do with it. Do you see the black dot? that's like three quarters of the way up on the inside of the left side of your screen, just a solid black dot. That's where the text ends. And then on the other side, uh, I say that way, <laughs> to the um, the big like oval O looking thing, big Omicron there. That is where the commentary begins. This is a, the Bible with commentary. It's like a study Bible, right? Well, the text in Mark ends at verse eight, absolutely clearly ends at verse eight. This is not the end of the whole thing. The next thing is going to go into another book of the Bible. And it's absolutely clear that this, against what Snap and Len have said in their, in their writings that I've read, it's absolutely clear that there's no awareness betrayed of the longer ending in this text. So in the text, it ends at verse 8. Then in the commentary, there's no mention of any information from the longer ending. And in Matthew... In the same text, when it gets to the end of Matthew, there's commentary. This is where you'd expect a commentator to like mention parallel passages. That commentary doesn't mention anything about the longer ending either. This betrays no knowledge of the longer ending, which is kind of weird when you think about it, but that's the way it is. Um, let me show you the end though. Now let's talk about that part that was cut off. <laughs> um, the very end of this text shows that there was an internal debate by the owners of the manuscripts. It's very interesting of this, uh, of this codex. Um, the red box, this is what Mina Monier puts in, and, and I put her a, a link to her audio commentary on this text down below. You can listen to it for free on, um, on the Mark 16 Project, which is a really neat website with great access to information, and they keep adding new info. I got a link to all that down below. So this, uh, to summarize her points on this, the red box shows the original ending of Mark where it's the text of Mark at verse 8, the commentary, and then it says, this is a typical Greek scribe thing to do when they're closing a book. They, it says, as the travelers rejoice upon reaching their homeland, likewise the scribe is upon the end of this book. It's just like a cute way for them to end a book. In other words, Mark definitely ends, in this scribe's opinion, at the end of verse 8. A later owner tried to erase it, which is why it's in the one in the red box is all <laughs> scrubbed out. So some later owner like was like, ah, I disagree with that. Then another later owner 
or later person tried to write it back in in the bottom we don't have the whole inscription there because that's where the page has been cut which who knows maybe someone did that to remove him writing it in i don't know um what we're saying is this debate is not new man this debate has been going on for a while and here it is even in codex 304 very interesting um don't listen to Lund and Snap on this one. I think they're wrong. Go to the Swiss National Science Foundation's Mark 16 project, and I have a link to it down below, mark16.sib.swiss. It's hard to find on Google because they are not search engine optimized. Their website's a little janky, but it's really cool stuff um, for you researchers. Okay, now here's the objection to everything I've just said so far. Mike, that's three manuscripts. You got two Alexandrian, one Byzantine from the 11th or 12th century. How is this that important? Let me just say, we're just getting started. There are some who think the entire argument against the longer ending of Mark is just two, three manuscripts, and that's it. And that's not true. That is a misrepresentation of the data. Let's talk about other Greek manuscripts that cause some trouble for the longer ending. Not uh, Here's a quote here from uh, Metzger. And this is a quote that um, uh, James Snap. Um, will say is very misleading. Um, I, I don't think it's as misleading as he thinks it is. I think it can be overstated, though. So I'm going to grant that. The quote is this, and this is in Metzger's textual commentary, page 103. He says, Not a few manuscripts which contain the passage have scribal notes stating that older Greek copies lack it. And in other witnesses, the passage is marked with asterisks or obelai, the conventional signs used by copyists to indicate a spurious addition to a document. Uh, James Snap's going to labor at refuting all of these things, but in my opinion, and I'll actually specifically Lunn and Dave Hester in their work, forgive me you guys if I'm mentioning things you're not familiar with. For those who are familiar with them, this is information you need. You need to double check everything they say about the manuscripts because there's some times where they are just leaving things out. Whether it was deliberate or not isn't the point. Maybe they just didn't check carefully enough, but they leave out some important things. Um... So it's just under 30 manuscripts that actually suggest there's some problem with the longer ending. That kind of matters, doesn't it? Because that means that even if it's present in some manuscripts, that might they might be saying it doesn't belong. But here's where a lot of my confusion came in in studying this. I was thinking that if a manuscript indicates a problem with the longer ending, it's like the, the scribe is weighing in against the longer ending. And then uh, guys like Snap and Lun are going to say they weren't weighing in against the longer ending. In fact, we think they were generally weighing in for the longer ending. What I realized as I kept studying was I don't really think these scribes were generally weighing in at all. I think they're just saying, I got some copies with it, some copies without it. And so they include it because what do you do when you're not sure or if you have copies, one copy has a verse, another copy doesn't? You include it maybe with a note like you're not making a judgment and that's what i think is happening a lot of the time is people in history aren't trying to tell you what side to pick they're just recording what they've got um, and when you look at it that way it changes the debate a little bit so um they in let me see i'm uh, getting lost in my notes uh, it's that they included data that means at least some of the older copies they knew of lacked yeah that's my point um <laughs> the point is not that these scribes are saying the longer ending doesn't belong. The point is, and this is actually what Metzger's point is, I think, his main point, which stands, even if he has some details here that he overstated. The main point is that in, a, in several Greek manuscripts, like just under 30, we have um, some reason to think that the scribes' previous copies, the older copies that they're using to make this manuscript, that at least some of them don't have the longer ending. In other words, it's not just three manuscripts. 
there's a lot more going on here. Each of these is showing there's a history, and the further back you go, the more there seem to be that lack the longer ending. That's a trend we want, that we care about. There are five manuscripts. Let me let me get into the weeds a little bit more on the manuscript issues. This matters to me a lot because it, well, you'll see. Um, there are five manuscripts from like the 900s to the 1100s. Manuscript 15, 22, 1110, 1192, 1210. And you can get my notes on BibleThinker.org after this live stream's over. Give us like an hour or two or three, <laughs> or maybe tomorrow. You can get my notes for this whole thing. You're, you're welcome to download this for free. I've got all the details there for you. But these ones, uh, and I'll give you a picture now of one of them. This is manuscript number 22. They have, um, boy, my computer's moving a little slow. I'm getting worried about that. They have after um, manus, uh, after verse 8, it has a note. Now, the way you can look at this manuscript, this is number 22, is there's this indented portion, right? There's text above and text below, and the stuff in the middle is kind of indented, and it looks a little different than the other text. That's the note. That's what the scribe wrote, and he has a little, little cross thing on the top there uh, to just draw attention to the note. So this manuscript, after verse 8 of Mark, after for the you know for they were afraid after that verse it has the following note in some copies the gospel comes to a close here but in many this also appears in some it comes to a close in many it appears so 900s to 1100s this 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 guy knows there's a minority of manuscripts that don't have the longer ending some could be five i don't know how many could be 300 he knows about could be two like in some it's got to be more than one right and in many, in the majority, for sure, he says it does appear. And then he gives the longer ending. Um, manuscript 22 is important because I think you have some misinformation from some others on that one. And manuscript four manuscripts from the 900s, uh, manuscript 1, number 205, 209, and 1582, they have the following note. Let's talk about the notes. They say in some copies, some, the evangelist is completed to this point, but in many, these are also present. This is implying that after verse 8, that there's some that are ending, but many that have it. So it's basically the same as what we read earlier. This is around the same time period. The majority of manuscripts have it for sure, at least as far as these scribes are aware. This On these manuscripts, one, manuscript number one, uh, Dave Hester in his book on this is truly misleading. Like he's completely misleading on this point. I was irritated because you're looking at these people to at least give you the accurate info and it was not it. Um, Dave Hester, I'm not mad at you, bro. Go look at your book. <laughs> um, all right. In three of the manuscripts from about 1,000, manuscript 20, 215, and 300, from, it says the following. From here to the end does not occur in some of the copies, but in the ancient copies, it occurs in full. That's interesting because here's a manuscript where they're, they are in, in, they're carrying off in different data than what you would expect based on what the, the people who are against the longer ending say. This many, these manuscripts, these three are suggesting that the scribe thinks the older copies all have the longer ending. In some of his copies, it doesn't appear though. So that would imply, like if all I have was that, I would think the longer ending is authentic. It was just missing from some later copies. But again, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, they're telling us that that's not the case. There were very old copies that didn't have it. Ah, so you get why this is annoying and confusing. So, um, some of them have symbols that may indicate that the longer ending is not in some of their older copies, and that'll be a debated point. I'm not going to get more into that, but I think that at least some of them do, and it's worth noting. In some of them, and here's a weird part. I'm going to throw more 
confusion into the fire before I give clarity here. Um, in some of the copies, you have Mark 16 up to verse 8. Then you have an extra different ending, which I call the intermediate ending. And then you have the longer ending. So it's like, what's going on there? This is the intermediate ending. Let me read it to you. It really is an, a different ending for Mark. And we'll ask what would explain its presence. And this will help us understand the lay of the land a bit better. Here's the ending. And all that has been commanded them, they promptly announced to those around Peter. And after these things, Jesus himself appeared to them. And from east, as far as the west, he sent out through them the sacred and incorruptible proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. It's definitely meant to be an ending of Mark. There's other variants in the passage that aren't supposed to be endings to Mark. But this one's the one that matters the most because it's like, clearly, that was an alternate ending. It, now, if you had the longer ending in your, in your manuscript, you would never have written that. You would never have added that. So every time we see the intermediate ending, it seems to mean that some ancestor to that manuscript didn't have the longer ending. It had the verse 8 ending, and somebody felt compelled to include this data wherever they got it from. So somewhere down the line, the longer ending was missing from the ancestors of the manuscripts that have the intermediate ending. It, nobody thinks it's original. Okay, it's not in the running. It's obviously invented to be an ending to Mark, and the best explanation for it is that in an ancestor, it ended at verse 8. So the presence of the intermediate ending is important here. That occurs in some of the copies, and uh, I think that Lun and, and Snap Tinto not, not consider the weight of that in their assessments. Let me uh, talk a little bit more about, I feel, like, I feel like kind of a jerk for doing this, but I, I care about you guys. And if you go through what I went through trying to understand these things, um, you, you're going to need some of this data because um, you may not have like 150 hours to put into the topic. Okay, so on page 35 of Nicholas Lund's book, this the, the original ending of Mark, and, and it, it's considered very persuasive by some. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Craig Evans wrote that he thought this might, this was like dropping a bomb effectively in the scholarly community, and he thought it might shift opinions. Um, after really spending a lot of time with it, I think that there's, there's significant issues enough that I'm not persuaded by it, and I, I want to warn you about it. So on page 35, he says about manuscript 83, Manuscript 83 is an example of a problem in Lund's book. That after verse 8, the intermediate ending is included in Manuscript 83, and then it's followed by a note, these verses are also present, for they were afraid. After, for they were afraid. Um, his point is this, and you can, you can check this out on page 35 of his book. His point is that the longer ending is not in question in this passage, only the intermediate ending is. So this, this, this copy is saying, hey, this intermediate part, that's questionable, but the longer ending is solid. Okay, here's the problem. Um, this is manuscript 83, and here's a summary from, this, from the Mark 16 Project, the Swiss Mark 16 Project website. And they're basically saying, you can read it on your screen there, they're basically saying, Manuscript 3 does have that, but it also has a note Lund didn't mention after verse 8 that signifies the ending of the gospel there. Manuscript 83 has the gospel ending at verse 8, then it has the intermediate ending, then it has doubt on those verses, then it has the longer ending, which obviously if, if the gospel ends at verse 8 in some of their copies, it's, it's ancestors, there's some doubt on the longer ending. This is why... Like Lund will have some good criticisms, good criticisms, but it's so mixed with other stuff, the confirmation bias, it feels like that I, I, um, 
I, I, I grew irritated. <laughs> and I want you to be aware of it because I don't want you to, you know. What happens is you just pick someone to trust. I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust that guy. But if you're getting some kind of distortion from a lot of different sources, it's, it, it becomes hard to do that. And you just have to do a lot of work. So let's not lose focus here, though. Um, it's not just Sinaiticus and Vaticanus is the point. Um, there's a number of other manuscripts that show that the, the textual history of Mark has a significant portion of missing the longer ending. Let's talk now about translations. Translations is a whole other deal. We just, we just talked all about Greek manuscripts. Now we're going to talk about how um, while the Bible was New Testament was written in Greek originally, it was translated into other languages. And those translations have different readings. And we can compare them. And we can see like a text history. So um, the Syriac is the first one we'll discuss. This is an important translation. It's, it's an important group of texts. It, it exists in multiple ways. And I'm just going to throw some info out there for you. I'll try to tie it together later. The Dia Tesseron is actually Syriac. And it's sort of a translation. I mean, it is a translation of Syriac. But this is not a compilation of the Gospels. It's a harmony of the Gospels, which I think is generally a bad idea. Like the Gospels are not meant to be um, interlaced like that because then you lose some of the emphasis that is meant by the individual authors in those passages. But um, but anyway, this is what a guy named Tatian did. He, he grabbed the four Gospels. He, he smashed them together. He made a harmony of the Gospels. And this was very popular for quite a while. And Dia Tesseron means through the four. This was this was like around 170 AD, okay? Like 160, 175, that's when the Dia Tesseron shows up. It definitely includes the longer ending of Mark. We're, so second century, we have the longer ending of Mark in the Dia Tesseron. That's pretty good. That, that's significant. The longer ending of Mark is definitely older than the Dia Tesseron. It didn't show up in the fourth century. That If anybody thinks that, that's not true. So the Sinaitic Syriac, though, is another Syriac translation that's not like the diatessaron it's just a translation and this is like late fourth early fifth century and it is the oldest not harmony but oldest translation by a small margin and it ends at verse eight and now you see why the syriac's confusing where the diatessaron has it the synatic syriac does not have it what's going on there most later copies do have it most later copies do have it the peshitta which becomes the popular Syriac translation from the 5th century on. It grows in popularity. And our copies of the Peshitta all have the longer ending, right? But sometimes we get the intermediate ending in the Peshitta as well. And the intermediate ending seems to betray that there are ancestors that had a verse 8 ending. Something has to explain the absence of the longer ending and the presence of the intermediate ending in the Syriac tradition and our oldest straight translation lacking it in Syriac. Something's got to explain that. Armenian translations. Um, Armenian translations, there's ongoing research on this. We have lots of copies. Dan Wallace says there's over 200 that had been examined, at least to the point at which he wrote in the Perspectives book. And of these 200 um, Armenian you know, manuscripts that have been looked at, 99 of them lacked the longer ending. That's really significant, right? In the Armenian tradition, there's a strong lack of the longer ending, very present. 33 in addition to that, indicated that verses 9 through 20 were doubtful, and four of them put the longer ending in a different location, implying that it was a text they wanted to keep, but that they didn't see it as part of Mark. That's interesting. So, uh, at least not part of Mark's ending. Now, the pushback, and you're going to get a lot of this, the pushback from the pro-LE guys on this is, hey, the Armenian, like from Armenia, <laughs> Armenian, not Armenian, like Calvinist Armenian, that's a different word, but the Armenian, this is 
because it was being influenced by Egypt. Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. That is the battle cry of the pro-longer-ending guys. They're going to suggest that everything comes back to Egypt. Egypt is where something weird happened, and then it spread out, and then it was pushed back down. Um, so they're going to say, yes, and, and the Armenian was probably influenced by Egypt. There's good case for that to be made. Okay, so they're not just being conspiracy theorists here. There's a good case for that to be made. Um, so Georgian translations, let's skip to the next one. In, in Georgia, Georgia's on my mind, not that Georgia, um, Georgian, the language, the two oldest Georgian translations end with verse 8. In with verse 8. So those who are for the verse 8 ending of Mark being original, they say, look, there's diversity here, especially as we go back. We're like, how come the oldest in the Greek and the oldest in the Georgian and the oldest in the Armenian and the oldest in the Syriac? The um, pushback against this is that's Armenian influence. The Georgian don't show the longer ending because they're influenced by Armenian and the Armenian are influenced by Egypt. It's all a result of Egyptian influence. I don't know how to be the arbiter of that debate. I'm just going to share it with you. We'll give, we need a lot more data to be able to have a more solid conclusion here. The Sahidic translations, the Sahidic, Sahidic, they, um, we used to have five manuscripts. This is like a language that's spoken like uh, in, in Egypt. <laughs> yeah, we're back to Egypt. So um, we used to have five manuscripts that were the main samples for like Mark's ending in the Sahidic language. These are from the 8th to 11th centuries. One of those has the longer ending looking pretty normal. And four of them, according to Nicholas Lunn, say, um, he says, they place the shorter ending before the longer ending or, sh or show some other indication of interruption at this point. Although Lund tends to use vague language when it doesn't help his case. So I don't, I didn't look into all the Sahidic stuff. I'd like to know more. But here's the more, most important element of the Sahidic. We found an even older copy. There's a 5th century copy that more recently has been discovered, and it clearly ends Mark at verse 8. So it's like 300 years you know, older than what we'd found before, and it ends at verse 8. Everybody here agrees. The debate, is, it, the debate sides are in agreement. The Sahidic did not have the longer ending in its earliest form. Everyone agrees. The people who were for the longer ending, guess what they say about the Sahidic? It's from Egypt. Sahidic is spoken in Lower Egypt, and so they're going to try to again suggest this is Egyptian influence. I'm not weighing in on that. I feel like it's a little over my head. Latin translations. Let's talk about Latin translations. Um, uh, Latin became the the normal language for people who are reading scripture for, for quite a long time. Um, it almost always has the longer ending in it, in the Latin. And some of our Latin copies are as old as the 4th and 5th century. They go back quite a ways. So Latin very consistently has the longer ending without the intermediate, okay, just the longer ending. But there's one exception, and it's weird, okay? There's a there's a manuscript called Babiensis, and its name is also weird. It's weird for a number of reasons. Um, it's just got weird readings. It's like the guy that wrote the Babiensis manuscript was just not very good at his job, right? <laughs> like, in it, it says Jesus is like... Um, Oh, the, oh, it has this text that says the uh, the gospel went out and was proclaimed from the east to the east. <laughs> you get the idea that the guy's not doing a very good job. But it ends Mark with the intermediate ending and no longer ending. This is like a real anomaly, right? It doesn't end at verse 8. It ends with the intermediate ending and there's no longer ending. This is the only one that does this, as far as I'm aware. And... Um, the implication, though, is that whoever's making this Latin translation is using sources that at one time ended at verse 8 
and then took on the intermediate ending and then he ends up copying that. Now, the response to this from the pro LE side is A, it's a weird manuscript. We shouldn't put that much weight on it. And B, B, this, and it's our oldest Latin though, but B, they'll say, hey, you know, Babiensis is from Caesarea and Caesarea is influenced. It's not in, but it's influenced by Egypt. Do you see the pattern? <laughs> okay, this is all going to come back to Egypt. So um, those who are against the longer ending, they'll say the lack of the longer ending in diverse locations in their earliest stages reveals that there was a gradual acceptance of the longer ending, not an initial knowledge of it. And those who are for the longer ending say it's not diverse. It's just Egypt just sticking its fingers in everybody's eyes. Um, my that's not their terminology that's mine all right so the lectionary system let's move away from translations let's talk about lectionary systems i'll be very brief here lectionary systems are just a, a schedule for reading scripture it's like a through the bible in a year kind of thing you, you're like what verses do we read on what days for public reading and lots of lectionaries exist from like the 800s and on and from then on it they'd like all have the longer ending from the 800s on but guess what some older lectionaries evidence not having it. The Georgian and Armenian, they don't have the longer ending in their oldest forms in lectionaries. And the Jerusalem lectionary, this is probably the most interesting one, does not have the longer ending. Now, the response to this is, hey, the Jerusalem lectionary from the pro-LE side will say that was influencing the Georgian and Armenian lectionaries. So we're they're going to try to isolate influence is the idea, right? Um the long, longer ending is definitely in all the later lectionaries, but those are later. It's lacking in important early ones. There's a whole little debate that goes on about the earliest Byzantine ones. It's a distraction and it's a waste of time. Um, the things I'm summarizing here, I think, are the important parts that we can pull from this topic. If the longer ending was originally part of Mark, someone has to explain why it doesn't appear in some of these older lectionaries. That's important. But it's also a little over my head. So I'm just going to put it on the pile of evidence and we'll add it up a bit later. So what church fathers have to say, let's talk about church fathers. This is something that's easier to wrap your head around because they're actually commenting on the text itself. Um, so it's not like translations and all this other stuff. Things will get a little easier and then I'll make them harder and then I'll make them easier again. So the church fathers, these are guys that quote the Bible all the time. You can actually reconstruct a lot of the Bible just from church fathers quotes. Not that that would be easy to do, but it would be possible. Um, there's way too much data here. I spent days, days and days on this. Here are some highlights relating to the church fathers, the most interesting ones in particular. Many, many, many church fathers want to acknowledge. They quote from the longer ending. Um, they don't necessarily tell you whether they think it's in Mark, whether they think it's scripture or not, but they show knowledge of the longer ending. Okay, so, but a lot of them do, especially in the late 4th and 5th centuries. That's still kind of early. But um, there's more data to consider. So the, probably the most interesting one is Irenaeus. Well, one of the most interesting. Irenaeus lives around like 180 AD, okay? Or at least he's he's writing his against heresies. He's writing this in about 180 AD. And he writes the following. Listen to this because he's going to tell you, he's going to quote Mark, the longer ending, and he's going to tell you it's at the end of Mark, which is pretty significant and very early. He says, at the end of his gospel, Mark says, and so the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was received into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's from, uh, you know, the very end of Mark. But it's also, according to Irenaeus, it's at the end of his gospel that Mark says this. So 
he's like a really strong witness. We can conclude very easily from this, and you can see the logic. I don't see any good pushback against this. That Irenaeus had a, had a copy of Mark that to him, it probably wasn't written five days ago, right? So like that was older than him. So probably early second century or earlier. He's got a copy Mark that has the longer ending and he thinks it belongs to Mark. He's got no doubt about it. But we shouldn't act like the church fathers are these like divine sources of knowledge because that's not what they are. They're historical sources of information. Irenaeus also thought Jesus was 50 years old when he was crucified. Think about that for a second. Yeah, he's a guy, okay? But he shows evidence that Mark was early, at least in his opinion. Tatian in 170, Tatian, I already discussed him, but I'll mention him again. He was a heretic. That's not relevant for today's discussion, but Tatian wrote the Diatessaron. It includes the longer ending. He wrote this about 170 AD. It basically means that it was in copies that he had earlier than that. If it was accepted by these guys, it probably wasn't invented in their time. That's reasonable, isn't it? Um, it that means it could be original or it could just be early. It could be early second century. It could be late first century or it could be originally a mark. Um, all those things would, would fit with the data from Irenaeus and Tatian. Now Eusebius, let's go to the 300s. In the mid 300s, a guy named Eusebius who actually wrote, um, uh, oh, I thought I had it over I probably do have it over here. I just can't scan all my books right now. But Eusebius wrote his church histories, right? Like everybody knows he's the earliest church history guy around. And he says the following. Let me give you the quote in short and how sometimes it can be a little misleading. <laughs> this is going to be annoying. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a misery love company, so welcome. Uh, he said the following, and this is how the quote is sometimes characterized in different people who are against the longer ending. They'll say that Eusebius says that it's not contained, the longer ending, not contained in all copies of the gospel according to Mark. Indeed, the accurate copies conclude the story according to Mark in the words, they were afraid, for the end is here in nearly all the copies of Mark. That seems like a very, very informed guy who's making a very strong statement. Hey, maybe in the 900s, in the thousands, the majority of copies had Mark, but in the 300s, Eusebius is saying the accurate copies don't. Well, I'm more inclined to respect the earlier accounts, but there's pushback. Here's the pushback on Eusebius. And as an apologist, a guy who does apologetics, I really understand this pushback. Okay, I'm going to read it to you now. It's on your screen. Um, Eusebius is writing to somebody. It's it's not a church history letter. It's a letter to somebody answering questions about objections to the faith, supposed contradictions in the Bible. I have videos dealing with this stuff too, right? So the supposed contradiction is that Matthew and Mark disagree about the timing of the resurrection. They don't. Um, it's kind of a weird <laughs> objection that, that he has, but apparently it came up a lot around the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries. So... He says, I'm now proceeding to the next question that are always being raised by everyone at the end of the same text. I do so without much delay since the will of God spurs us on onto this through your commands. Marinus, my most honored and most industrious son, you asked first, how is it that in Matthew, the savior after having been raised appears late on the Sabbath, Matthew 28, one, but in Mark early on the first day of the week, Mark 16 verses two and nine. The solution to this might be twofold. And now, here's me talking now, Eusebius is going to offer two options for how you might answer this objection. One option will be to say that it's not authentic, that the longer ending doesn't belong. Let's read how he writes this, and I'll give you some thoughts on it. Because um, some would say, 
Eusebius is being hypothetical here. He doesn't actually believe that the ancient copies, the accurate ones, don't have the longer ending. He doesn't believe that. He's being hypothetical. I think there's... I, I In the end, I disagree with that. But let's walk through it. Um, the solution to this might be twofold. I'm quoting Eusebius now. For on the one hand, the one who rejects the passage itself, namely the pericope which says, that, um, says this, might say that it does not appear in all the copies of the gospel according to Mark. At any rate, the accurate ones of the copies define the end of the history according to Mark with the words of the young man who appeared to the woman and said to them, women, and said to them, do not fear, you are seeking Jesus of the Nazarene and the words that follow. In addition to these, it says, and having heard this, they fled and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Eusebius then continues, for in this way, the ending of the gospel according to Mark is defined in nearly all the copies. The things that appear next, seldom, and in some but not in all the copies, may be spurious, especially since it implies a contradiction to the testimony of the rest of the evangelists. This, then, is what someone might say, to avoid and completely do away with the superfluous question. Okay, so Eusebius does offer it as an option. As an, Okay, I get this as, as a, a guy who does apologetics. You can t say to people, I'm not sure, here's one option, here's another option. I do this sometimes, right? Not, as, not, not to be squirrely, but because I don't, you don't know everything, so you lay out some options. But then he gives another option. He goes, on the other hand, someone else who dares to set aside nothing whatsoever of the things which appear by whatever means in the text of the Gospels says that the reading is double, all, and as also in many other cases, and that each of the two readings must be accepted in that they both are approved in the opinion of the faithful and pious nor not this reading rather than that or that reading rather than this. He's saying, hey, you may not like this question or this this idea, um, but let me, okay, then he gives a different option, a different way of interpreting it. I won't get into that. That's his number two option. Let me now offer some thoughts on Eusebius. Eusebius seems to not just be saying, here's a possibility. He seems to be granting it's possible because of certain facts of reality. He does seem to think that in the accurate copies, it does not appear. But Eusebius also thinks that it may be hasty to say, let's just say it doesn't belong because it does appear in some of the copies and maybe God's providence is involved in that. And so we don't want to cast out something that might be intended by God to be part of scripture. So Eusebius, it seems, thinks that a, a decent option is accepting that Mark ends at verse 8 and Mark ends at verse 20. And there's multiple readings of Mark. And that was just how God saw fit to uh, give it to the church. But the most important part Eusebius does seem to say, and I think that this is his opinion, that in the most accurate copies, in the majority of the copies he has, it ends at verse 8. That's Eusebius' opinion. doesn't mean it's true about all the copies. It means that's what he thinks. So the, um, the pushback that you might get on the pro-longer ending side is, okay, fine, fine, fine. But Eusebius was influenced. Can you guess who influenced him? By Egypt. Right, because Eusebius, he was educated, his mentor came from Egypt, he had associations with Egypt, and so maybe he's been influenced by Egypt. Okay, this is, let's just acknowledge, this is just guesswork at this point though, right? Um, we're, we're filling in gaps of what we don't know with what maybe we want it to be at that point, and it's just, I'm a little hesitant. The next one who says almost the same quote is a guy named Jerome. In the 400s, Jerome, and this make, becomes even more complicated, he's in like, and there's going to be three of these, okay? This is the second one. He's in the, the exact same situation. He's asked in his letter to Hedibia, a Christian woman, he's asked about this supposed contradiction between Matthew and Mark about the timing of the resurrection. 
Um, he responds with two possible answers, just like Eusebius. Here's what it looks like. Just a second for it to load up. All right. And it sounds so much like Eusebius, but it's not the same, and we need to acknowledge that. Okay, uh, I'll read to you what Jerome says. To answer this question is twofold. Either we do not accept the testimony of Mark, which appears in only a few copies of the gospel, almost all the Greek books not having this passage at the end, especially since it seems to relate different and contrary things to the other evangelists, or else the answer may be given that what both say is true. That's kind of what Eusebius said. They're both both of them are true, right? That's the second answer. Um, and then he goes on and explains how that works. Jerome's quote, the part that's towards the top of the page on your screen right now, um, he is quoting Eusebius, but not quote. It's not a quote. He's not just copying Eusebius's words and using them. He is saying the same thing Eusebius said, but it's different. Jerome, and here's why the those who want to push this aside and go, Jerome doesn't count. He's just echoing Eusebius. He's not a second witness that there are many Greek copies uh, lacking the longer ending in the in his time in the fourth century or fifth century, early 400s. I push back against that and I think rightly so because Jerome changes what Eusebius writes. Jerome says that this testimony only appears in a few copies of the gospel, almost all the Greek books not having this passage. Now Jerome had a special interest in Greek readings, not just Latin or other translations. Jerome was very interested in what does the Greek say? What does the Greek say? He talks about this. Jerome adds his own information here, suggesting that he's aware of Greek manuscripts, a significant amount that lack the longer ending. So while we may only have three, you know, two that are predate Jerome, we've got Jerome saying there's a lot more that are older. So perhaps he knows of more Latin manuscripts that have the, have the longer ending, but he also knows that in the Greek in particular, which he respects very highly, it's very often not there. So I think that Jerome seems to know what he's talking about here. There's other reasons to think Jerome knows what he's talking about. In history, little side note here, Jerome's the only guy to mention another variant called the Freer Lagion, this weird, strange, admittedly, variant that nobody, nobody, their grandma, their uncle, or their nephew thinks belongs in the Gospel of Mark, but it's a variant that exists that Jerome acknowledges. He's like, there's this one reading that says this, this, this. We never found a manuscript with that reading until very recently, Codex W, I think it was Washingtonius. Um, this manuscript, which has the freer Logion, what it confirms to us is even though we've been digging and digging, we just finally found a copy. Jerome's knowledge of the variants in the Gospel of Mark was very accurate and is recently been confirmed as being very accurate. So it implies that we should consider what he's saying here with more weight. So Eusebius and Jerome, I think, should not be set aside as being hypothetical. I don't think that works. Um, but you might be like, oh, it's settled. Eusebius and Jerome, and Jerome especially. This guy translated the Vulgate. This guy like studied the Greek. He was like, you could look at him as a really reliable guy, right? Well, here's where it gets more complicated and slightly more annoying. Jerobe, Jerobe, <laughs> I don't know who that is. Jerome translated the Vulgate, and when he did, guess what? In his Latin translation of the Bible, which became like the standard for the for especially the Roman Catholic Church, um, uh, kind of enshrined by them later on at the Council of Trent, the the um, the ending of Mark includes verses nine through twenty in his translation in the Vulgate, and there's no note. There's nothing saying that it doesn't belong. Jerome doesn't cast doubt on it. He doesn't put. There's nothing there to recommend that it doesn't belong. So here in one quote, he's like, yeah, it doesn't appear in hardly any of the Greek manuscripts I got, but then he includes it. Um, 
Initially, I was very confused by this because I kept looking at history trying to find people who were going to tell me it belonged or didn't belong. But I think we see something else. We see a third option, which is people who think, hey, it's not in most of the manuscripts, but it is in some, so I'm going to include it. I think that's what Jerome probably did. That's my theory on Jerome, and I'm not a scholar on Jerome, but it is what I think probably happened. He included it for some reason. Some say he was just scared to not include it. They would riot and attack him or something. Others um, would suggest that, um, and this is what I think, Mark 16, the longer ending, it doesn't actually pr provide a true contradiction with anything. It exists in some of his manuscripts. The fear would be losing something that God wanted us to have because look, it's there in some of the manuscripts. So Jerome includes it. And I think for the same reason we should include it today. Well, for another reason I'll explain later as well. Okay, that's Jerome and Eusebius. Um, they suggest that the very early copies don't have it, at least many that they're aware of. Victor of Antioch, he offers, now this is super interesting. He quotes the same thing to the same question. Matthew and Mark, they disagree. Victor of Antioch says, hey, here's two possible solutions. It's like the exact same thing. But he changes the quote a little bit too. Jerome changed it to fit his thinking. Victor of Antioch changes it to fit his thinking too. He says, not that the longer ending is missing in the majority of copies. He says, there's very many copies that end at verse 8. There's very many copies that have the longer ending. So here in the 5th or 6th century, he says it's a tie between the numbers of manuscripts. But he adds this, that the most accurate copies include the longer ending. Specifically, what he calls the Palestinian Gospel of Mark. Victor of Antioch says there's a special accurate copy that he really trusts called the Palestinian Gospel of Mark. Guess what that is? Where can you can read it? You can't. Like, we're clueless. Where's the Palestinian Gospel of Mark? What is he talking about? We don't know. There you go. History, you see, has a debate going on, the same one that we're having today. Um, now, let me, those are the most interesting ones. Now, let me point to some that are commonly used as silent witnesses against the longer ending, and this may be an overreach, as I think... James Snap and Nicholas Lund and others try to point out. Clement of Alexandria, um, in 150 to 215, that's when he's alive, he he never quotes from the longer ending. So some suggest he didn't know the longer ending. But what we have to do is create expectation, right? Like I've got a reason to think that Clement of Alexandria is going to quote Mark before I make a big deal about the fact that he doesn't. He rarely quotes from the Gospel of Mark at all. There's massive chunks of Mark. Most of it he doesn't quote. So I don't really see a reason to have strong expectation for Clement of Alexandria to quote from Mark. So using him as a witness, as a guy who didn't know the longer ending, um, I don't think is significant. And if he and if he is, they'll just say he's from he's Alexandria, right? So, so he's, he's in Egypt. Um, but I'm going to set him aside. Origen is another one. Origen, 185 to 253, that's his, his, his life uh, span. He seems like he had good reason to quote. In his second book against Celsus, and I did read, read chapters 56 through 70, follow his argumentation. This gets kind of complicated, but when you read through the text, you go, it would really help your argument if you had another verse from Mark to quote in here about the more faith thing and all that we talked about last week. So, okay, I think Origen does have reason to quote from the longer ending in this particular passage. He often doesn't quote Mark, but here there's, there's a place where it would have helped him. Um, but that's not super strong evidence. This is, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on this. Origin may be soft evidence that there's um, an important guy in church history who is not familiar with the longer ending of Mark. That may be the case. I wouldn't put too much on that. It does seem reasonable though. Um, other people don't quote it and it doesn't really matter. Um, Tertullian, 
um, and Cyprian in North Africa, but y you need to create expectation. Origin is the only guy I see expectation for. Now, let me talk about First Clement because I spent pretty much almost a whole day <laughs> on First Clement. Um, and here's why. First Clement is like crazy early. This is a document that was written around like 95 AD, like a, right around that time. So we're talking late first century, and it was written from Rome, which is where Mark was probably written. Nicholas Lunn, in his book, he thinks that, and I've got a link to his book down below as well, he thinks that this book, this letter, First Clement, it actually betrays knowledge of the longer ending of Mark. That would be massive evidence because that would mean it had to have been known in Rome in the first century and accepted as scripture. That's, I mean, this, I could, this would like almost close the deal, this one piece of evidence. So I spent a lot of time on it, um, trying to check each detail, look at all the evidence. I have lots of notes on this. I'm not going to share them all with you. Here's my conclusion. Lunn compares first Clement, little, little phrases and words, and he, and he tries to source them. And the assumption he makes that he doesn't tell you he's making, I think, is that he's trying to figure out which one of the gospels these words came from. That's a big assumption to make, that First Clement is sourcing these words in one of the Gospels. That's a big assumption. Um, he doesn't mention that. So when he compares Clement, First Clement, to the, um, the letter to the Corinthians, when he compares this to the other Gospels and Mark, he's like, hey, of the four options we've got, Mark uses these words more than those other guys. So I'm going to suge suggest that he has knowledge of the longer ending. What I did, though, was I compared these Greek words throughout their use in the entire New Testament. And the long story short is this. First Clement is far more closely connected in those very words to the book of Acts or to, like, the letters of Paul than it is to the longer ending of Mark. It's only when you ignore the rest of the New Testament and you assume First Clement is using one of the four Gospels for his sources on these. They're not even quotes. They're just words. Then you make, you make that assumption, then you can build your case. I think this is like a Trixie Hobbit moment for Lun. I'm not saying you do it on purpose, but it it's like, wow, that's really, well, I guess you're right, you know, but no, it, it's not. Here, I think when trying to build connections between the longer ending of Mark and church fathers and old writings, I think that um, Nicholas Lund in particular, I think James Snap seems to do this too a bit. I, I'm sorry if, if I'm insulting to anybody. I don't mean it that way. We care about the data. These just happen to be people who are presenting data. I think that they tend to have questionable methods, very low standards for confirming something connects to Mark. And um, I saw that happen a lot. So th that's here's my thoughts on Nicholas Lunn and James Snap is um, they, everybody makes mistakes on this stuff, right? Dan Wallace has made some mistakes. Um, I'm sure I've probably made some mistakes. I, I hope not, I don't want to, but I'm sure I have. But they're, general approach is to be hypercritical of the mistakes of those who were against the longer ending and to have what seem like pretty low standards for confirming their theories about why it should be included. And that is not helpful and you'll, it will breed confusion. So here's my conclusion on the church fathers before we move on to the next thing in today's epic, epic study. Isn't it, is it, it's sort of a Bible study. I mean, it's, 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 it's necessary is what it is. But, um, the Church Fathers, here's my conclusion. The longer ending, based on the Church Fathers, is extremely early. It seems reasonable to say that it's early 2nd century or earlier. Like, these are the options we have when we read the Church Fathers. Like, early 2nd century or earlier, because especially of Irenaeus, 
um, like really strong evidence there. Wallace says the following in the Perspectives book on the Perspectives on the Ending of Mark, Kindle Location 424. He says the patristic testimony thus reveals a very interesting trend. Here's his interpretation of it. From the earliest discussion on the authenticity of this passage, the fathers indicate that the that most of the copies of Mark end at 16.8, like at Jerome, Eusebius. Yet in later centuries, the short ending was increasingly looked on unfavorably, and the standard in the standard commentary on Mark of the Middle Ages, the short ending was rejected. Putting this on a trajectory, it takes a little imagination to realize that what became the majority reading in the Middle Ages started out as a minority reading. This is not overstating things here. I think this is an accurate summary of the data. It was. It doesn't say, therefore, it's not original. It's saying it was a, more of a minority at a younger age and a majority at a later age. That has obvious implications. So the longer ending, though, is very early. Um, we need to ask the following questions. Why is it lacking in some of the oldest manuscripts? Why is it lacking in some of the oldest versions? Why do some ancient sources say it's not in most of their Greek manuscripts? Um, why do other more recent sources say it is in most of their manuscripts, whether they're Greek or not? Um, there obviously is a trend towards acceptance over time. Can we really just say that all comes down to Egypt? And I'm a little skeptical of that, though I don't truly know. And that's why I had to launch into the second branch of study, which is the internal evidence. And that's what we're going to do right now. The internal evidence is not about manuscripts. It's about taking those 12 verses and looking at the style and the way it's written and the vocabulary and all the grammar and all that and comparing it to the rest of Mark and asking, was this all part of the same book? And did the same author write the, the last 12 verses that wrote the rest of it? So the claim here is that the longer ending, and I agree with this claim, the longer ending does not match the style and the vocabulary of the rest of Mark. I think it's. I think it actually seems, I was surprised at how strong this evidence is. I thought it was gonna be weaker, but I'm more convinced uh, after spending time on it. So I'm gonna break it down to you. I'm not gonna give you the whole thing because sometimes people do overstate the case. But my conclusion is gonna be that Mark didn't write the long, the same author that wrote Mark didn't write the longer ending. Not even as part of a separate work most likely, but definitely not part of Mark initially. Um, Nicholas Lund's case is that the same author wrote the whole thing um, as, as, you know, ultimately the same thing. Mark wrote all of this stuff and he wrote it all together. And James Snap has a very different peculiar, seems peculiar view to me. And it is that um, verse eight was the ending of Mark unintentionally because of some urgency. For some reason he stopped at verse eight. And so Mark had other writings. They grabbed another writing of Mark's that was a nice summary of what happened after the resurrection. And they just dropped it into that passage. So Mark is the author, but it wasn't originally part of Mark, but you can still consider it part of Mark because it was the same author. And that's kind of Snap's view as I understand it. Okay, some have overstated their case. Um, let me first get this out of the way. This is criticized rightly by Lunn and Snap and others. Um, what some do is they read the last 12 verses of Mark and they gather every unique word, every word that occurs in the last 12 verses that doesn't occur in other places in Mark. And they go, we've got like 17 unique words. Therefore, this doesn't match the rest of Mark. 17 words and 12 verses, that doesn't match. Okay, there's proper pushback against this. You can't just count unique words without context and thinking about why they're there. For instance, the word 11 is there. The word snake is there. The word poison is there. There's no reason in the rest of Mark for them to use these terms. There were 12 until 
the last part in Mark where there's 11. Okay, that's the only time you're going to use the, the word 11. Um, you know, when we get in Mark the story of John the Baptist's beheading, we have words like birthday and Herodias and platter. Those are unique words, but they don't mean Mark didn't write it. They're needed for the story. So we can't include those. I was sort of driven nuts going through this personally. Let me share some of my frustration with you. Because I started thinking that the standards felt sketchy on all sides when it came to how they were proving whether Mark really wrote this text or not. It just didn't feel like this is the right way to analyze it for some of the stuff that I was reading. The best source I have found, and I've linked it below. You can read it for free on academia.edu. You just make a free account there. And I've linked it down below. This is an article by Travis Williams, who I'm very grateful to, um, who also I was able to interact with on email about this as well. Um, his article, let me just show you at least what it looks like. Bringing Method to the Madness, Examining the Style of the Longer Ending of Mark. Man, when I read this, it was like I wanted to hug the man because one of the things he criticizes is that on both sides of the debate, there are lax standards and there isn't consistent methodology for proving that Mark did or didn't write the same 12 verses as the other verses in the, in the book of Mark. Um, this article was a breath of fresh air. His complaints, like, I was like, yes, yes, that's, thank you. And I, that's why I originally wrote him, was to be like, thank you. It's like a drop of clarity in a pool of confusion or something like that. I, I was really poetic, but I wrote to him was really, it was, it's a good email. Um, so um, both sides have been ac inaccurate on this, though I think that Lunn did me personally more harm than others because I took a while to undo some confusion that was created by reading his. So let me start with, um, oh, where, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I can fix this. We can fix this. Everything's okay. All right. This is verse 9 in Mark 69. Well, let me point out a few of the problems that show there's a disconnect between, in the internal evidence, between the ending of Mark and the rest of Mark, the at least the longer ending of Mark. So verse 8 would be the ending. I would actually say verse 7 and 8, right? Um, Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Plenty of people don't like the way that ends. We'll get there next week. Um, when I try to build the case for why I think that we can accept that ending. Um, but verse 9 has a break, like a disconnect with verse 8. In other words, it feels like whoever wrote verse 9, it wasn't originally part of the longer ending. It wasn't originally part of verse 8. Now, actually, James Snap agrees with this. Agrees very strongly with this. So it starts weird. In verse um, 8, the subject is the women. Right? They went out and, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The subject continually is the women in verse 8. The subject here in verse 9 is Jesus. Now in the English, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. It's just after he had risen. And a lot of times Mark doesn't use the name of Jesus. That's pretty common in Mark. He uses, he'll use like some other term, he. Um, but in the Greek, this is a nominative singular participle, anastus. Anastus um, the way it's used and the way that Mark uses participles like this, there should be something in verse 8 that is about Jesus. And then verse 9 is continuing the discussion about Jesus. So there's just, this doesn't give the whole case. This just demonstrates Mark doesn't usually write like that. That's a little strange. Another strangety, is that a word? Another strangety, or is that a Mikeism? <laughs> is when he appears to Mary Magdalene, Mark in verse 9 introduces, or whoever writes this, introduces Mary a whole new way. 
from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, Mary has been introduced three times so far. Mary's in 1541, right? Her first introduction, she's um, Mary Magdalene, 1540, excuse me. Um, and then she's witness, a witness, specifically a witness to seeing um, what happens with Jesus. She witnesses Joseph taking his body. In 1547, Mary Magdalene, she's just called Mary Magdalene. No, no more details. This is what's called disambiguation. Mark is just telling you who his eyewitnesses are. That's how I take this. And I've already taught a lot about that in the Gospel of Mark series. So he just wants you to know, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, da, da, da. Then uh, they see where he's laid. Then in verse one, Mary Magdalene, again, she's gonna see the empty tomb and witness the angel. That's their function here. But all of a sudden in verse nine, she's introduced for the fourth time and new data about demons cast out. It's just, it's just strange. Let's just acknowledge this is not what you expect. Her name, she's been introduced, hasn't been discussed this way. The story of the demons being cast out was never recorded in Mark. She is introduced this way in Luke. Luke introduces her, but it makes sense because it's an early introduction, not the last mention of her. Um, that seems strange. I don't think there's any good explanation for this. I've heard explanations uh, on page 140 of his book. Nicholas Lund tries to offer various explanations. I think if you carefully analyze his comparisons to the Old Testament, they, they don't work at all. I think that they fail badly. Um, and it actually makes me feel more strongly about this. There's, there's also in verse 9, there's no transition. This is a softer thing. There's no transition from the many women to just Mary. Right? He first appeared to Mary, but what about these other women? They're not discussed. Uh, Mark has tracked with them, and all of a sudden, they're not discussed. Um, it also restates a time already mentioned just a few verses earlier. So Jesus rose early on the first day of the week. That's when they go to the tomb. Very early on the first day of the week. Verse 9, It just it's almost like it starts fresh. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, but wait, he already gave that time indicator. It seems a little odd. All this is to say, the way verse 9 sits in the text, it doesn't feel like it flows from verse 8. That's the implication. There's a lot more data we need, though. I wouldn't cast it out based on just that. Um, I'm not going to cast it out at all, actually. <laughs> but I wouldn't make my decision on that. There's then examples of internal evidences that are like the way that Mark writes. So in the longer ending... Mark uses terminology and uses certain like style of Greek that reflect that perhaps it wasn't Mark, right? Because Mark is a peculiar writer. Mark has what some scholars call Markisms. Markisms are things like euthus, the word immediately. You've read this when you read the gospel of Mark in English. You're like, why does he keep saying immediately? Does he mean it happened right away? Is that what he, is this a time thing? And immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Now, actually, Mark just has a peculiar way of using immediately. Sometimes he's just like, he's just saying like another thing that happened. <laughs> like He's not even using it like that. It's just a Markism. It's just the way he is. 41 times he does this. Now, this is usually on lists of words that are in the longer ending that don't belong. Or that should belong, excuse me, that are, that are not in the longer ending that should be there because Mark uses them. But I'm going to agree with like Nicholas Lunn and James Snap here. Youth, this is not, as far as I can tell, a good example of something we expect in the longer ending of Mark. So it's on all the lists, as far as I can tell, but it doesn't seem like a good example because you can't just say, Mark uses this word a lot. He doesn't use it here. Therefore, it doesn't belong. Like, you're going to start cutting all sorts of stuff out of the Bible if you think that. That's a very reckless way to do things. It's not accurate. Um, you need to prove there's expectation. Another one that I think is a bad example is the word palin. Palin, and I spent 
Oh, there's been a lot of, I've been too much time on everything, but Palin is a very common example. It's used 28 times in Mark. Mark uses the word Palin to say um, again, the word again, basically. And he's, okay, there's actually a paper written by uh, Dr. Randall Booth on Mark's use of Palin. I'll show you the picture of it here. I was able to contact Dr. Booth and I'll show you what he said. It's in Notes on Translation 61. Very difficult to get a hold of, but if you if you message uh, sill.org, they may provide you with a copy. I was able to get one that way. Um, very hard to get that copy. But this is a true Markism. Okay, what we can acknowledge is Mark uses Palin in a very specific way. It's very much a Markism. But, and, and, and Travis Williams in his article suggests this is evidence against Mark having written the longer ending because it doesn't show up in these 12 verses. But the big question is this, just because Mark uses it a lot doesn't mean I expect him to use it here. So I actually messaged Randall Booth. I got a hold of him. It was easier to get a hold of him than it was to get a hold of the paper. But um, I asked him the following. I said, here's my question to him. I said, do you think Mark's typical use of Palin gives us reason to expect it to appear in the longer ending? Not just because it's a 12 verse section, since there are many 12 verse sections in Mark that don't use the term Palin, but because the longer ending has context, which creates expectation for its use if the same author penned it. Here's Dr. Booth's answer. He says, I don't see a natural place for Palin. 1612 is the closest, but it already has a time marker and a different topicalized group of two people that would make Palin less likely. I conclude that two words that are on everybody's list maybe shouldn't be. Euthus and Palin immediately and again don't seem like, they are Markisms, but they don't seem like they belong in the longer inning enough for us to think that it matters. There are a bunch of other ones that do matter though. So let's walk through those. Kai. Okay, Mark has a Markism, a thing he does where he likes to use the word Kai in a way that's more like a Hebrew thing, like the way the Hebrews talk and not so much the Greek. In Greek, they tend, authors tend to use the word day and Mark tends to use the word Kai. Now they are interchangeable, but tendency is what we're highlighting here, not possibility. Okay, it's not impossible for Mark to use day that way. Generally, he uses Kai. It's the, it's the and word. Now, this is important because this is not a word like 11 or snake where it, you expect it in the passage because it's about those issues. This is like a building block word. Travis Williams talks about this in his paper, which I highly recommend. And I've linked down below on the, um, what did I call it? Bringing Method to Madness paper. And a building block word special because regardless of context, Mark just keeps doing this. Like throughout his whole book, he just keeps using Kai in a particular way, no matter what he's talking about, meaning that no matter what he's talking about in the longer ending, you would expect it to appear here. It reflects Hebrew influence, and it's not just how often Mark uses Kai. He uses it a ton, but it's the way he uses it that's special. Typically, the word day is preferred here. In other Greek sources, Mark goes with Kai, possibly, like I said, due to the Hebrew influence. The longer ending completely flips this. Whereas everybody else, the other Gospels, they all use day over Kai. Mark uses Kai over day. Other Greek writers use day over Kai. Mark uses Kai over day. But in the longer ending, it suddenly becomes very Greek and it doesn't sound like Mark. Lund um, tries to offer two passages in his book of examples of sections where Kai and day are, are used as similar ways as they are in the longer ending. But I think these sections, when you read them, you realize they're not narrative. They're not the same kind of thing. And so they don't apply. I think they're bad examples. And so I think they're kind of misleading. Um, now, in a messenger conversation with Travis Williams, I, I wanted to ask him about this. Um, 
So here's here's what he says, and, and he gives some more clarity than even what's in the article. He says, the striking part is that Mark employs Kai like a Jewish author uses the Hebrew conjunction Vav. He, he places it um, at the beginning of sentences to string one idea to another so that multiple statements are in a coordinate, coordinate relationship. If you were hearing it in Greek, it would sound like a six-year-old telling you about their day at school. And the teacher said this, and the teacher said that, and this happened. This is good Hebrew, but terrible Greek. It's, it's not that Mark is dumb, you guys. It's that he's natively Hebrew and he's writing now in Greek, so he has some leftover remnants. People who have a second language, say English is your second language, you have some things that come from your mother language and they influence your way of speaking in English. The question then, I continue Travis Williams' quote here from the conversation we had. He says, the question then is that if Mark does this so often in 1-1 through 16-8, enough to establish that when Mark writes, this is how he writes, why don't we see the same phenomenon in the longer ending? In the longer ending, the sentences are more complex. There are adverbial participles making up complex sentences, and the primary connective conjunction is day, which is much more reflective of traditional Greek usage. Why would Mark use a distinctive style for 16 chapters and then all of a sudden decide to switch it up? This one, the Kai and Day issue, seems like really good evidence to me against the longer ending, against that Mark wrote it. Right, Because I think anything Mark wrote would probably carry this Kai and Day feature unless Mark later learned Greek better and changed his style, but that seems less likely. Okay, So at least it's a good strike against Mark and authorship of this passage. In, uh, now, someone else could have wrote it. Mark could have used an amanuensis, a, a secretary, and they could have wrote it. That's possible. I'm just suggesting Mark didn't pin it himself. Um, also, another example is in 1619. Mark 1619. And... and um, I have no cat. She's gone, so I can't even refresh you guys with a little cat cam. Let's just dig. Dig deep. Yeah, can't use that. All right, going up to the other one, and there it is. And here's Mark 1619. So then, this is towards the end of the longer ending. It says, so then, this is a great chance for the longer ending to use the word Kai. Here instead, it uses men un. This is the only occurrence of the, not the words, the phrase men un, or its usage in the way that Mark uses Kai to occur, to my knowledge, and it happens in the longer ending of Mark. So it's just another demonstration of, hey, that doesn't seem Markan. You might not notice it in English, but a careful analysis of Greek reveals there's a problem there. Another one is, and this one gets a bit complicated, a couple of these do, because that's the nature of syntax and all that. Mark uses the historic present, okay? This is a verb form that Mark prefers, the historic present in Greek. More, he uses it more than any other gospel author, and his is his gospel short. And he uses it more than what's typical for other Greek writers at the time. In other words, this is like a real Markism. Like, Mark writes this way. Let me show you how much he does this. This is in... Um, this is in a book um, about on the synoptic problem, uh, Horace Synoptice, I think is the name of it. I'm trying to remember. It is in English, <laughs> even, if, even if the title is not. Um, but this author went ahead and lined up 151 times Mark uses the historic present verb form and compared it to other gospels to just demonstrate, here's my point, Mark does it and they're less likely to do it. Um, other research has gone into this to show that it's not just Mark. It's, I mean, it's not just the other gospel writers. It's just Greek writers in general. This is like a Mark thing. Here's an, another page offering a bunch more examples of Mark. Um, 151 uses of the historic present. Another page offering the final list of examples there. 
What's interesting is 151 uses very consistently throughout the Gospel of Mark, very much a Markism. Never in the longer ending is the historic present used. That, that's telling. That seems important to me. That seems worth acknowledging. This isn't just a frivolous difference. Um, yeah, this is a uniquely Markan type thing, and it doesn't show up in the longer ending, and it seems to appear regardless of context. It's a consistent style point of Mark. Let's talk about the demonstrative pronoun. The demonstrative pronoun, I'm going to read you something here. This is from Travis Williams' footnote on the topic, um, or Travis Williams' comment on the topic. Um, I'm going to read it to you, then I'm just going to summarize crudely what he's saying for anybody who gets lost in the details here. In Mark 16, 17, the demonstrative pronoun is used as an attributive modifier 41 times in Mark's gospel. Each time it functions in this manner, it is placed in either first or second predicate position. In verse 17, verse 17, I'm going to put that on your screen real quick. I'll highlight it for you in a second too. In verse 17, it's going to be these words, these signs. The construction would be an, an, an Arthurus second predicate position. While this construction does appear elsewhere in Mark, like 6.4, never does it occur with the demonstrative pronoun, which it does in verse 17, I add. Now, quoting him again. Um, Furthermore, in this predicate position, there is never such a great separation between the pronoun and the word it modifies. Now, it, you know, this is me again. In the English, these signs is together. In the Greek, they're separated with three words between them. That's another example. So here's what this is saying. Um, in crude terms, <laughs> simple terms, the way the phrase these and signs, these two words, the way they appear in the Greek is different than the rest of Mark, both because of the words chosen and because of the fact that they're separated by three other words appearing between them. So their location is weird. In another example, it's another example of how Mark typically constructs sentences differently than something we find in the longer ending. You know, I would, I would just ignore a lot of these anomalies to a point, right? But they add up. Let me give you another example that I think is very important. Theaomai. Uh, Mark has 66 times he uses a verb for perception. He usually uses arao, harao, excuse me, or blepo. So harao, he uses 50 times, blepo, 16 times. And that's when he's talking about people seeing things. He uses them in important moments when they see Jesus walking on the sea, when they see Jesus laid in the tomb, when they see the tomb empty. Right, Come and see the place where he laid. Mark uses harao or blepo. But two times in the longer ending, verbs for perception are used, and it's a different verb that doesn't appear in Mark elsewhere. Theaomai. We're not saying that Mark is ignorant of the word. We're saying he doesn't tend to use it. I have not seen any good explanation for this from James Snap or from Nicholas Lund. Um, I have walked through their explanations, but I'm not going to do that today. I think the point stands, and you're welcome to check it out on your own if you'd like. Um, that's in um, a Travis Williams' article, which is relatively short and points you to other sources you could look at as well. Now, this is what Williams thinks is the strongest piece of internal evidence against the Markan ending, and it's it's the word poryuomai. Now, poryuomai is a word for going. So, and they went, and they went out, they go out. This is poryuomai. Uh, Mark has this word happen a number of times. Williams, again, he says this is the strongest piece of lexical evidence, internal evidence, that Mark did not write the passage. Let me build. Let me tell you how he built this case. Number one, he says the word poryuomai, it does not have situational specificity. That is, it's not like a leaven or poison or snake. It's not a word that you expect for a situation. This word just describes movement from one place to another. 
And Mark does this about 25 times in his gospel. When he does it, it's not that he doesn't use poriumai, it's that he uses what's called a compounded form or poriumai with a prefix like epipormio, poriumai, right? Ekporiumai or something like that. Like these are examples, and forgive me if those examples aren't the best ones, but those are prefixes. I'm just Greek prefixes I'm attaching to the word. And, and so they're going to add a prefix to describe the way he does this 25 times. 16 of those, you use this exact same verb, poriumai. But um, when you add 25 together, that's, that's a lot of examples. That's a lot of examples. So Lund's own analysis of this in his book strengthens this because he's like, let me compare how the other gospels use the prefixed form of going compared to the non-prefixed form, right? Mark, he likes the prefixed form big time. The other gospels... They like the unprefixed form big time. So Matthew has 29 uses without the prefix to seven with. Luke has 51 without to 16 with. John has 16 without to two with. Acts has 37 without to nine with. This is a strong just tendency probably of just Greek writing. Mark has 25 examples, 16 of poor you and I specifically, and they're always prefixed, only until you get to the longer ending. In the longer ending, verses 10, 12, and 15, it is no prefix. That's weird. Here's the point. That's peculiar. Mark doesn't usually write that way. There's no situation that would change the way he writes this, as far as we can tell, at least nothing that seems likely. Lund does offer other defenses on this point, because this is a really strong point, and so Lund labors on it. His defenses in my opinion, are terrible. Like if you read them, you start to go, what's going on here? These are not good at all. Um, his final defense, Nicholas Lund, and he does this in a number of cases, is to suggest that the reason the longer ending looks different than the rest of Mark is because of maybe Mark's sources. Mark's appealing to certain sources for these eyewitness accounts of the resurrection appearances. I have two problems with that. For 16 chapters, Mark uses a variety of sources and they never affect him that way. And in chapter 16, certainly Peter is one of his sources. Peter has been a source up until that point, and he hasn't affected Mark that way. So it just doesn't seem reasonable. Um, this seems very unmarked. Snap, James Snap's defense on the poor UMI thing, having the prefix or not. Uh, number one, he lists examples. This is important because uh, I think we get lost in the debate, right? But he'll list examples of other words only used three times in one of the passages of a book, but nowhere else in the book. Okay, to me, this is like, bait and switch. The debate here is not, Mark uses a word three times, he never uses it elsewhere. That's not the issue. The issue is Mark has a way of doing a certain thing and here he does it differently. It's not just a unique word, it's a change in style. So that's not addressed by Snap. Um, his second argument is that Mark's use of a compounded form with prefix earlier shows that he's aware of the uncompounded form. But again, this is bait and switch because the problem in the longer ending is not that poor you and I um, is a word that Mark doesn't know about, like he's ignorant of the term. It's just a word that Mark knows about and doesn't use. And so I see no good defense against this. Now, let me let me hit this home, <laughs> the internal evidence with, with a final observation. So Dudna, Charles, John Charles Dudna, who I think has a really awesome last name, Dudna. Um, he wrote the book, The Greek Gospel of Mark. And it's in the Society of Biblical Liter Literature monograph series. It was like four bucks. Like a lot of times this stuff is crazy expensive. It's like four bucks to get this. Now what he does in his book 
is he compares Mark. He wants to find out, look, he wants to find out what's unique in Mark. Let's want, he wants to find out several things. But one of them is, what's unique in Mark? What's Mark's unique writing style? Okay, that's exactly what this longer ending debate is about, right? So what he does is he compares Mark to the Greek that came before it, Attic or Classical Greek, like Old Greek. He compares Mark to Old Greek. Then he compares Mark to the papyri that exist, you know, contemporaneous with him, Koine Greek. And he wants to find out, where is Mark unique? Right? This is part two in his book is, what does Mark do that these other sources don't do? Now, these are true Mark-isms. This is like Mark's way of writing. Not just different than the Gospels, but just different than people, okay? Different than people in general. Okay, this is, this is unique. This is interesting. In the conclusion, uh, Lund, uh, excuse me, uh, Dunda has 21 of what he calls Mark-isms. 21 features of Mark that are distinct to Mark. That's how Mark writes, Mark-isms. What, what Travis Williams did was he took... Duna's 21 examples and he looked through the longer ending because Duna never talks about the longer ending. He probably didn't think it was authentic. He didn't even address it. So, so he doesn't help us there. But Travis William took Duna's 21 examples and to me this seems like a pretty objective way to approach it. He just dropped them on top of the longer ending and asked are any of these in the longer ending and his conclusion is not a single one. I confirmed this with him because it wasn't super clear in his paper that he carefully checked every one. So I confirmed this with him. I, I felt like I was being kind of rude, but I was like, I just want to double check. Here's what he told me. In the Greek of the Gospel of Mark, John C. Duna discusses numerous syntactical constructions in which Mark either deviates from or stands in, oh no, this is from his paper, or stands in line with the standards of classical Greek and the non-literary papyri. While some are more peculiar than others, all play a part in making the style of the gospel unique. On a brief perusal of Duna's work, however, one will note the absence of any such features in the longer ending. So, again, I was like, this is really powerful. It's an important argument, but I don't know that he was super clear in his paper. So I emailed, hey, I got Duna's book, Travis Williams, and I checked every page. He never talks about the longer ending. Where did you do the comparison? Did you, did you check this? Or did you, you know, did maybe you make a mistake and not realize Duna doesn't even deal with the longer ending of Mark. That's why he doesn't mention Markisms there. And he says, no, no, I want to make sure you understand, right? I checked every one of these against the longer ending and they didn't appear. Now, I'm happy to hear someone push back. I've never heard someone argue against that. I think it's a significant piece of the case. I'm open to hearing more because I don't know anybody who's pushed back. There is, however, before I move on past the Markisms and we talk about the million dollar question, um, there are those like Lun who try to say there are really Mark like terms, and Snap does some of this, in the longer ending. I've gone through their argument. I think it's pretty weak. It's not that no terms are there, but again, Lunn often will only show the likelihood of another gospel author using the term compared to the likelihood of Mark using it, not a wider survey of the likelihood of Mark versus just another author. And so it, it ends up being a Trixie Hobbit kind of moment, if you ask me. All right, so like for instance, uh, euangelion is is a is a word for preaching the gospel that that occurs in Mark especially, right? It's in the beginning of Mark, in the opening. This is the gospel of Christ. It's it's there in the longer ending at the ending, and they're like, hey, it's like it's like an inclusio, like this is showing you the longer ending is authentic, and it's rarely used by the other gospel authors, but Paul uses it constantly. It's not like this is just a rare word in authors, okay? And so then it has less weight. Finally, I'll just add this. I'll throw this out there. You know this, even in English, if all you know is English and you read the Bible and you read through Mark and you really think about it and, you, and you're really spending time on it and then you read the longer ending, you notice what I notice. This just feels different, doesn't it? It feels radically different. 
the contents of the longer ending just feel very unique. Like I read the whole gospel of Mark, study it verse by verse. I've been teaching it for like two years or something. Well, we took a break for some of that. So it wasn't that long. But this is part six, 69 in the Mark series we're in right now. I'm telling you, the longer ending just feels different. And I think people acknowledge that on all sides, or at least they can. Now the million dollar question of scribal motives. Um, this is what it comes down to. Okay, we've got the internal evidence there. That's pretty strong. That's pretty powerful. Some people think that's by itself is enough to say that it doesn't, it isn't part of Mark originally. But scribal motives is the million dollar question when it comes to manuscripts and church fathers and lectionaries and translations. The, the question goes like this. Which reading would most likely give rise to the other readings? This is what these guys, text critics, always ask. They're like, we've got two, three different readings. What originally re reading would explain all the rest? And here we have to ask, would, would, would scribes more likely remove the original ending or would they more likely add the longer ending? Do people in Egypt seem like they're more likely to cut out the original ending or lose it? Or are others more likely to add a longer ending? So here are a couple reasons suggested on the side of those. I hope you're still with me, man. I'm fading over here. <laughs> it's so long. I'm going to die. Um, I'm keeping this video together because I want all the data in one place or I know it'll get confused online. So... Um, Two reasons are suggested for why they would remove the longer ending, especially in Egypt, right? Remember, they tried to push it all towards Egypt. And there's some success there. I just don't know if it works for all of it. So two reasons are suggested. Um, one is because they may have thought verse 9 creates a discrepancy with the other Gospels. Well, obviously, there was a debate about this, right? Eusebius, Jerome, right? Victor of Antioch. They're t they all talk about the supposed contradiction between Matthew and Mark here. Um, and there is not a real issue that we have to worry about, but they all talk about it. Now, the pushback on this is from Dan Wallace. He says a couple things. One, um, Mark is actually in agreement with Luke and John. Matthew's the one that reads slightly different, the one that you have to go, I'm going to reconcile this. Matthew's the more tough one. So if scribes were prone to omit a verse because of this issue, they'd more likely omit Matthew 28 verse 1, not Mark 16, 9. It, it seems as though it was after Mark 16, 9 through 20 is missing that this issue of you know, bringing apologetics into it, which shows up, not before. Also, the and this makes a lot of sense. Why would you cut out 12 whole verses from the ending of the Gospel of Mark when you only have a problem with like one word in verse 9? Yeah, that seems like overkill. <laughs> it seems pretty unlikely. We generally don't see scribes doing that, right? They usually would, it, when they do change a passage, which we can tell, and we can tell what it originally said, but when they do mess with stuff, we can see it, and we can see that they're often harmonizing. That someone's like, oh, Luke says this here. I'm going to add that text in. You know, maybe it's got more details. So they're doing some kind of like harmonies. Um, another response, so I think that's unlikely. Another response is verse 17 and 18 about poison drinks and snakes is embarrassing to the church. And so they deleted those verses to get rid of that embarrassment. Now, there's a, there are some significant problems with this. Why on earth would you delete 12 verses? Because two of them are a problem for you. That's... I mean, it just doesn't fit, okay? So now you could try to combine them. Verse 9 is a problem and 17 and 18 are a problem. Let's get rid of all 12. But we just don't see this happening much. It doesn't seem to work. Um, also, it seems unlikely for other reasons. Okay, so scribes did tend to edit small portions on occasion, but not remove whole sections. They would often harmonize, and their tendency when in doubt is to include a passage. I'm not sure. I'll include it. You would do the same thing if you were the scribe. Is that original or not? I'm not sure. I'll include it just in case. 
Um, not only this, but the church fathers were not embarrassed by verses 17 and 18. Maybe you are. I'm not. I don't think there's any problem with those verses. Um, I think snake handlers misinterpret and misapply them. But our earliest quotes from like 9 through 14 is from the 5th century. But our we have 10 fathers that quote from verses 15 through 20 in the 2nd through 4th centuries. My point is, the embarrassing part, they weren't embarrassed about. So we don't see the embarrassment that's there. And uh, again, why would you delete 12 verses to deal with those two problems? My conclusion here is this. Look, removal by scribes for those reasons seems very far-fetched. And when you try to start to suggest, there's a couple other options people will throw out. Um, they removed them because they were Gnostic heretics that rejected the resurrection of Christ. This is the conspiracy theory version. A, Gnostics don't seem to have that much power in Egypt. B, why would it spread so broadly through the rest of uh, Christendom, you know, at least more broadly than just Egypt. It's influencing all these other places, if that's the case. See, why didn't they remove other resurrection-related stuff in the Gospel of Mark? Because it still ends with a bodily resurrection in an empty tomb and predictions of, of a resurrection and appearances at verse 8. Why didn't they do that to the other Gospels? Why isn't there a trend to trying to remove resurrection stuff? It, there isn't. There, this is just, there's a lot of problems with this view. Another view is that the longer ending was lost. It wasn't removed in purpose. It was lost because the scroll was rolled up and the ending was on the outside of the scroll, and it broke off and was lost. Um, I'll approach this a little bit more next week, but that seems like we just don't have evidence to support it. Like, it's a theory that it works. Like, it would explain the data, but there isn't corroborating evidence to support it. Where's the reconstruction of what people remembered of Mark? It would have had to have been lost so early, like almost the original copy of Mark, that was lost. Um, also, the tendency is to roll scrolls so that the ending of a scroll is the most protected portion on the inside of the text because you're reading from the outside. Um, so yeah, there, there's no attempt to reconstruct it. There's because verses nine through twenty is not a reconstruction; it's a separate edition, is what we see here. Um, so yeah, then we have the other solution, which is hey, the reason why this, the longer ending is missing in some places is because originally it wasn't there. So we, instead of suggesting, why is it missing, we're going to ask, why was it added? And a few different reasons are suggested for why it was added. And I would add to this, the intermediate ending is strong evidence in support of this. Because the intermediate ending is definitely added to a, a verse 8 ending. So we know people had a tendency to want to add to the end of Mark. Um, one of the reasons is because they felt like it. Okay, when, when Mark ends in verse 8, when you read it, you're like, that's it? That's the end? It's understandable. I don't think it's a bad ending, but I think that it's an ending that, that has some people scratching their heads. And um, it ends with women fleeing in fear, saying nothing. And people wrongly understand that. I'll interpret that next week. That'll be the last video in the Mark series. We'll talk about making sense of a verse 8 ending. That seems legit, though. I, I could see how people would have an impulse to add more to the end of Mark because of the way it ends. Another issue is because it lacks narration of resurrection appearances. It does predict the resurrection appearances. It talks about them ahead of time, but it doesn't narrate them. Um, that's true. Uh, when, when the four Gospels are looked at, Mark's the only one that doesn't have that narration. It does talk about the resurrection. It just doesn't narrate them. Some people make a really big deal about this and they blow it out of proportion. We'll deal with that next week as well. But that could provide motive for wanting to add more content. Um, when the four Gospels were first packaged together, this is an interesting thing. When they were first packaged together in some locations, Mark is the last of the four. Which means that in the reading of all four Gospels, you end with verse 8. And now it feels even more strange. Because you've ended 
all four with verse eight, not just one of them. That could give people a desire to compile, you know, a summary of the extra data that wasn't recorded there. Um, another thought is that they just wanted to give it, and this is perhaps similar to the last one, uh, they wanted to give it an ending similar to the other Gospels, right? All the Gospels do this. Now, against this, I want to say, um, some say verses 9 through 20 are just like a pastiche, like a like a cut and paste from other Gospels, just dropped into Mark. But that does seem a little bit reckless to say that because it's not just straight quoting all the other gospels. Um, it is more of a summary. It's not just in the words of Luke or in the words of John, although there's some connections, but I don't, I wouldn't say they're all that, they're too strong, but all the content there can be found, almost all of it found in other places in the new Testament. So what I'm going to say is the scribal, the million dollar question of scribal motives, which is a big question, a good one. It involves some guesswork, but it seems to weigh in favor of the short ending, the verse eight ending. That is, the variety of manuscripts, the church fathers quotes, you would look at the internal evidence, the rest of the external evidence, and you go, I don't think this was originally part of Mark, and I don't think the guy that wrote Mark wrote this. I don't think Mark wrote it. Those are two different claims. So th this, is, this is my conclusion, right? I do not think that Mark wrote it, and I don't think it was originally part of Mark, but I still want it in my Bible. And this is the part where I think I'm gonna be a little weird compared to what I've read a lot of other people say. Not, I mean, there's, there are some people who agree with me, but it's, they don't talk about this very much. One reason why I want it in my Bible, what if I'm wrong? I do not want to miss out on a single piece of what might be scripture, okay? But I have another reason. And I'm open to new data changing my mind. I'd rather have it there and move it from either a footnote or a bracket into, into the main you know, text or whatever. And, and that's an easy move. I don't want to lose it. Number two, Depending on how you view canonization, that is how we got our scriptures, you have to recognize something. That even if it wasn't originally part of Mark, it was part of Mark very early and for a lot of people, and it gradually became part of Mark for everybody pretty much. Maybe that was God's design. Maybe while Mark was intended to end at verse 8 originally, God also intended this other section to be added. And we don't even know where it came from. For all I know, an apostle wrote it. Or someone who followed one of the apostles. Maybe as the apostles are dying, there's some elder in a church who's considered very reliable and he's known, he, he, he knew Thomas or something. And, you know, he writes out his summary of what happened at the end, you know, the resurrection appearances. And he's like, I just want to have a memory of this. And someone goes, hey, this would fit perfectly at the end of Mark where I feel like it needs to be there. Like, we don't actually know where it came from. But it's super old. And it was accepted and embraced early in the church. Pretty early. At, at the mid-late second probably mid second century at the latest. So I'm going to say that that could simply be God's design. Some of the books of the Bible don't come to us like an inspired author writes, nobody ever touches it and it comes to us perfectly and unchanged. Sometimes books of the Bible are like an inspired author writes and then somebody else finishes this part and someone adds a section here. Sometimes that happens and there's nothing uninspired about all that. God is in all of the providence of how we get our Bibles and I'm okay with that. So I kind of want it included because I feel kind of like maybe Eusebius and maybe this is Jerome's opinion and why he included it in the Vulgate. He went, yeah, it's not in the most ancient, maybe in the most accurate copies, but, but it is there. And it may, well, it may well be that God wants it there. And it might be apostolic in nature. That's also possible. I don't know. So I don't think it's original. I don't think Mark wrote it, but I want it in my Bible. And I want a footnote that says things like, 
hey, this isn't in some of the earlier manuscripts, and some of you know there, there's there's a, a demonstration of gradual acceptance of this passage, but it's very early. I'm cool with something like that. Now there are some lingering issues, lingering issues at the end of this marathon. And thank you guys for joining me. Like, thanks for being there. I, and by the way, it's cool that I get to see some of your names that I recognize, like. Um, Jay Hamilton and stuff like that. Like I, I see you guys all the time on my on my stuff. Valacor, I recognize your name, um, and I'm just Miss Kitty. <laughs> I've seen you guys, so I'm just I'm grateful that you guys are joining me on this journey. I've never been able to study so deeply into the text of Scripture and spend so much time preparing content. I mean, it was easily over 150 hours, and I um I, I wouldn't normally say that out loud. I wanted to say it because I know it will get more people to watch the video, and that's how I get people to be ministered to. So there's that balance of that kind of thing. Um, but hopefully this is at least going to give you some better understanding, make you feel grounded. But there are some lingering issues, and they're like these. Some people say, look, look at verse 8. Mark cannot end that way. They didn't tell anyone because they were scared. Like, it can't end that way. Um, others would say that, uh, you know, the last word in verse 8 is the word gar. And in Greek, nobody ends with gar, especially a narrative. A narrative is never ended with the word gar. And I'm going to suggest... I'll answer that next week. Others will say there's no resurrection accounts. That threatens the doctrine of the resurrection. Nicholas Lund says this in his book, that this is like the very doctrine of the resurrection is somehow threatened if you don't think Mark wrote verses 9 through 20. And I'm, I'm like, this is the overcorrection I'm scared of people doing, and they crash and die. So I'm going to deal with that. Others will say, hey, all this stuff is just evidence that the longer ending of Mark, while it's not the original ending, it's revealing something. Mark's gospel never ended at verse 8. The original ending was lost. The original ending was just lost. I'm going to answer all that stuff next week. How do we make sense of a verse 8 ending? And that'll be the final study in the Mark series. I'm going to then be taking, just for announcement's sakes, a break. My Sunday night service that's located at my church, we're on just a break while I do a major study project on women in ministry. And I'm going to teach, um, spend a lot more time than I did on this, on that topic, read everything I can find, and give you guys all the I'm going to tackle every tough question I can think of here, whether or not I can fully answer them, um, and all the passages of Scripture and a variety of interpretations of them, and try to like get clarity on this topic. And um, and I'm not afraid to stand on what Scripture says on it. I just want to make sure I understand what Scripture says on it. And, um, and then some other stuff I'll be doing. Then we'll be launching into the Book of Hebrews probably in two, three months from now. And we'll start the book of Hebrews. That's the next big book we're going to be doing. So thank you guys for joining me. Thank you for the mods that stuck for a longer than two hours session. Um, this is just what it had to be. And I am grateful for you. So thank you. Lord bless you and keep you. If if anything else, if nothing else you get from this, is you should realize that this should not affect your faith at all. Right? At all. But I want it in my Bible. <laughs>